You're listening to the Oz Movies Podcast, only on the Oz Network. Welcome to the Oz Network uh, for episode number five, week number five of Mission Impossible Summer. Uh, as we're now only a week away from the North American release of Fallout, and as I just found out, two weeks away from the Australian release of Fallout. Uh, but we're up to the most recent, as of now, Mission Impossible movie, Rogue Nation Part 5. And this is the episode that's so exciting that toddlers everywhere are screaming and crying because they all want to be part of this episode. So if you hear some of the background, it's not unusual. Don't it's worry. It's Tom Cruise. It's just Tom Cruise, yes. Um, my name is Colin, and you've got a really warm hand. And my name is the King of Norway. And join the Oz Network. See the world on a monitor in the closet. Don't say in the closet. Let's not start it again. <laughs> I wasn't even thinking that. But while we're there, Tom Cruise. <laughs> uh, this, just like the others, is going to be fun because I can already hear Ben's line. It's like, my history of this movie is nothing. I only saw this one day ago. <laughs> but we're up to the fifth one now. And, uh, I mean, coming into this, I've been saying every single one of these episodes, like, I love this movie. I saw it multiple times. Like, I remember... When we were up to Mission Impossible 3, I'm like, I saw this three times in theaters, and then we did Ghost Protocol last week, and I'm like, this was the first movie I saw three times in the theater since Mission Impossible 3. So, I mean, I'm clearly, like, a huge Mission Impossible fan, even coming into Rogue Nation, but even though I think I walked out of this not feeling like it was the best Mission Impossible movie I had ever seen, I walked out of this basically saying, listen, this is now my third franchise. This is... Star Wars, James Bond, and Mission Impossible. Like, I would put, after seeing this, Mission Impossible above Indiana Jones, Back to the Future, Jurassic Park, some of my other, Rocky, some of my other, like, franchises I just loved. And it's just because of the consistency of this series. Um, you know, we're, we're up to the fifth one here, and, you know, this is the fifth director we've had, fifth writer, um, fifth crew. Thank you, Casper. Uh, baby. <laughs> <laughs> one baby no second <laughs> i'm calling it now jamie stop it put the condoms you on hear that, jamie? <laughs> but uh <laughs> shirtless chris pratt in the corner go away <laughs> wow she heard you okay <laughs> but uh yeah i mean the series just kept getting better and you look at the gaps between these movies, it's unusual that we could even get this far because it's not like there's a lot of other series out there. You know, we get certain ones that'll be gone for years and they'll come back. But you look at the Bourne series and they, they made the comeback if you don't include the Jeremy Renner one uh, you know, a couple of years ago and nobody really cared. And other franchises out there, you know, they'll have like a decade long gap and all of a sudden, like Indiana Jones even. And then, oh, let's make a new Indiana Jones movie. You know, this has been a consistent series and going all the way back to episode one, I've said the same thing. Like, this is probably the longest running consistent franchise in the world today. I mean, Jurassic Parks took a break. They rebooted. This is all Tom Cruise, all one series, but like five directors. And the fact that the reviews just kept getting better for each one. I mean, I kind of knew going into this movie that this was supposedly like the most complex one, the most interesting one the critics were saying this was the best one i was there opening night same as the other stories for me i went with the same friend that i went with uh no actually I, the first showing i went with just with jamie to this 
because um, she was a fan <laughs> of Tom Cruise. Jamie. <laughs> well, she, this, it was unusual because prior to this, I could only go to Tom Cruise movies with the friend I told you about who corrected me on the, the wrong writing uh, in the, the India sequence of Ghost Protocol. But now all of a sudden we'd seen Jack Reacher. Jamie's a fan of Tom Cruise. So she was there with me for opening night. And uh, it wasn't even a question. It was good enough. I think I had already bought tickets to see it again five days later because my friend and my brother, who's seen a couple of these with me, they couldn't go to opening night. But I'm like, you know what? I know I'm going to see this again before I even saw it the first time. So I had tickets to see it a second time before I even saw it the first time. And of course, it, you know, in no way was I disappointed that I had that. I got out of this thing. Yeah, I can't wait to go see it again on you know, Wednesday or whatever the day was. So, uh, Ben, why don't you hit us with your history of this movie? Because uh, I'm sure it's a story we haven't heard yet. I love how you were kind of like, I was only allowed to go to a Tom Cruise movie with this one friend. Like, it was an embargo <laughs> placed on Winnipeg. Like, nope, there's only one certain person you can go see Tom Cruise movies with. Um, yeah, so my history of this is about 24 hours ago, I pressed play uh, on my Windows Media Player and watched it. And uh, <laughs> can I just say from the get-go, um, I really, really, really enjoyed this film. Um, and I might just give it away now. This is maybe my favorite out of all of them. I thought that just, yeah, this, this was thoroughly entertaining. I didn't want to stop watching it. Um, and it's kind of interesting. And I'm sure we'll talk about it in the wrap up how, you know, I went from this going off. Oh, so the first two didn't want to see the others because the first two turned away. Whereas, you know, the, the next three kind of, as you obviously alluded to, it wasn't really a secret or a surprise were the best ones of the franchise, really. So. Yeah, I mean, this this was great. This was very entertaining. And, um, yeah, I mean, it only just hypes up. And, actually, I think probably having seen this film now, I'm actually, for the first time I can say, I'm actually excited to see Fallout. Not that I, you know, I'm just kind of like, yeah, okay, sure, I'll go see that. But now I'm like, yeah, okay, I really want to see it. Because, yeah, this movie was great. Yeah, that's kind of like the reaction I had. I mean, I, I, I think I, I've grown to be a bigger fan. Of this. And it, when I said this wasn't my favorite Mission Impossible movie, I mean... That was just to show you how much I love these movies because uh, I think I walked out of this thinking like, you know, it doesn't top like three or four. I wasn't quite sure if it topped the first one. I knew it topped the second, uh, but it was just so different. I think that's the great thing about these movies is they all feel so different. Uh, when I came out of this, I was like, I, I don't care whether this movie's the greatest or not. And it was the greatest. I mean, it was the best movie I'd seen that summer, I think. But it was just the fact that you know, this cemented it for me. It's like, this is a franchise that can't be beat. This is a franchise that James Bond struggles to keep up with. I mean, yeah, we've had Casino Royale. We've had Skyfall. But we also had Quan Masolis and we had Spectre. And, you know, I'm a fan of both of those movies. But I'm going to make the argument that, like, the last three Mission Impossible movies as a whole, I think, stand up better. And I think when Fallout comes out, we're going to say the last four Mission Impossible movies as a whole stand out better than the Daniel Craig four that we've had with the James Bonds. And that's the thing that even watching it now, and this is probably the sixth or seventh time I've seen this movie in the, this, the what three years since this has been out. Uh, the thing that you know, has kind of always surprised me the most is that when I, I watch this, the more I watch it, the less it feels like Mission Impossible. It still has all the Mission Impossible things like from the TV show and the other movies. There are more connections to this than any other movies prior to this to, to the other movies in the series. A lot of it's just little references. But to me, this almost feels more like a classic James Bond movie. And, you know, this is like the early Sean Connerys combined with like the spectacle of the, the, the mid Roger Moores and the Pierce, early Pierce Brosnans. I, I don't know. I mean, the, I, I kind of watch this now and feel like, sure, I love Casino Royale. Sure, I love Skyfall. But wouldn't it be great if the James Bond movies could inject a bit of the Mission Impossible movies 
Whereas I guarantee when they made this movie, they said, wouldn't it be great if we injected a little bit of the classic James Bond into the series? And I think the thing too, which we'll no doubt do a lot of in this episode, is the fact that this came out the same year as the, at the time of recording this, the last James Bond film, Spectre. Um, and it, it's crazy to kind of think there is a lot of similarities in this film to Spectre, which, I mean, considering that they came out, what, about six months apart from each other, is it? Uh, was it, was it that probably long? Probably even less, probably like three or four. Three or four months. Um, yeah, I mean, that's just, that's just crazy. But even just kind of staring here in front of me, the, the box office takings. I mean, Spectre only made $5 million more than Mission Impossible. So it kind of was, it was very similar. And I, I kind of watched a video, um, on Rogue Nation before recording this. And, you know, this, the person who made the video was basically like, look, you know, I know Spectre came out this year, but this was the best spy movie of 2015. Uh, and, mm. you know, I'm a big Spectre fan. I, you know, maybe, as a, I think I said, and you guys went off of me, maybe my favourite Daniel Craig film of the James Bond films. But, yeah, I mean, I think everything you said is true. I, I think kind of consistently um, they've they've kind of all stayed that way since Mission Impossible 3. And, you know, even though a lot of people talk up how good the Daniel Craig era of James Bond is, uh, consistent consistently it's not there i mean quantum solace was a massive drop of form and i realize specter isn't exactly held up in high regard compared to skyfall and casino royale so yeah i mean to have 50 percent of you know universally loved james bond films against really what for, well i haven't seen fallout yet but considering the earlier reviews are pretty good 100 <laughs> percent yeah. mission impossible so yeah i think kind of on that stakes you i would definitely agree with everything you said about mission impossible v james bond in the last 10 or so years and coming off of the four movies, like I was saying, where the the directors change every time, the writers change, the only uh, consistent thing was Tom Cruise and Bing Rames, uh, almost Bing Rames in Ghost Protocol, minuscule Bing Rames in Ghost Protocol. <laughs> uh, like these movies never even reference each other. You know, I think Ghost Protocol is the first one where we even talked about, you know, hey, this right here, where his name's Sergey, that's the reference to the code name in Mission Impossible Two, and. Uh, you know, this and that references to one and three. Um, but those are very minor things. They've only started doing that in four. With Rogue Nation, I mean, the movie feels completely different from all the other movies. But it was also just surprising when they started announcing the cast for this movie. And I think we kind of had the suspicions the way that, that Ghost Protocol. And I say we as if you were there in 2011 saying, I'm calling it. <laughs> Renner's coming back, Pig's coming back, Reams. <laughs> well, actually, I am the uh, founder of the Jeremy Renner fan club, so, uh, you know, I was saying that from the very get-go, basically. Yeah, <laughs> but but that was weird to me, and I remember, not that I was uncertain in a way of, oh, I don't know how I'm going to feel about this, they're, they're bringing back almost the whole cast, who does that in a Mission Impossible movie? But just uncertain is in like, you know, is are they going to go for something completely different here? Is this going to feel like it fits with the others? bringing back the whole cast. And in the end, the only one that didn't come back was Paula Patton from the first one, uh, which at the time I remember thinking like, you know, it's not like she was my favorite character in Ghost Protocol, but thinking like they finally kind of hit on like a female action hero character. You know, I'm so disappointed. And the only new actor that really came into this as far as a member of the team is, uh, you know, Ilsa, uh, the new female lead here. Uh, and I remember when they announced her casting, you Rebecca Ferguson. I don't think I had seen her in anything. You know, I'm, going to kind of skim through her filmography here because um yeah like i literally had seen her in nothing leading up to this um hercules there we go i had seen her in hercules with dwayne johnson in a very small role 
but to me, this is almost going to sound mean, but she just looked too boring for a Mission Impossible movie. I remember being kind of disappointed even with her casting. And again, this is almost making it sound like I wasn't sure if this movie was going to really hit. But I wasn't crazy about that going in. But coming out of this movie, like I couldn't be happier that they replace Paula Patton and Tandy Newton and <laughs> Michelle Monaghan and you know go down the list because the one thing that I think this movie really will live on for is giving us and I'm going to put the James Bond movies up there with this probably one of the best female spies we've ever seen in movies and you know not that there's a lot of competition out there there is just in terms of a lot of people have tried it but I mean this movie hit on something with a female spy character that I don't think I had ever seen before. Well, I don't know about you, but I was a huge fan of her short film, Lenart, where she played home care personnel. Uh, so, I mean, she just... Oh. Breakthrough performance. And I don't know what you're talking about, best female spy. I mean, Melissa McCarthy in Spy is pretty good. <laughs> um, I think the difference, the real difference, though, when you talk about these female characters in the Mission Impossible series is they're not really overtly sexual or kind of there purely as an object for Ethan Hunt to bone. I mean, Tanning Newton, maybe. Um, but it's kind of, you have this trope of the Bond girl, which nowadays, yeah. whenever you have an interview with it, you know, we saw it with Leia Seydoux, like, oh, I'm not a Bond girl, I'm a strong female lead. You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of, they're, they're trying to steer away from that. Whereas Mission Impossible have never really had that, have they? And I'm, I'm sure... In the lead up to these films, there has been a bit of press, you know, I'm sure the comparisons between these and James Bond in the lead up to every film, you know, particularly in the earlier days was huge. But I mean, I, I never go into these films expecting, uh, you know, Rebecca Ferguson or any of these type of people to be essentially just the side girl who he's going to have sex with and has to save at the end of the day. You know, it's kind of, I, I don't even see her as a different gender, if that makes sense, in terms of the fact that she's just, uh, a person there who's there to save the day and no, she shows up she shows up and says, it's a woman that's a woman those things on a chest right uh, no Ilsa? that doesn't that's too masculine sounding for me there's no way that's a woman <laughs> but i mean like it, it it i think it's done in a way that it's not really i mean this is maybe something to talk about during the film but like you know tom cruise is still married in this movie so like it's yeah. never i think implied that these two are going to hook up so it's just kind of like, she's his partner. And I like that. You know, this is an argument you and I have always had when it comes to these things. That stop glaring it down our throat like, oh, she's a strong female. It's like, she's a strong character. I don't care what yeah. her gender is. She's a strong character. And the other new addition uh, being, well, I mean, we got Alec Baldwin as well. But I mean, as far as the now major that characters. Is a man. That is a man. <laughs> you know he's a man. Alec Baldwin Not is a man's movie. man. <laughs> Yeah, but Rebecca Ferguson never had chest hair like that. That's the <laughs> distinction. <laughs> Can we put, like, Alec Baldwin versus Sean Carter? Like, that's the hunt for Red October. That's the battle of chest hair that never happened. Like, there's a missed opportunity. <laughs> if I rub my chest but, hair against you, Alec. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Sean Harris playing the, the new villain, and that was the other thing that, again, I was a little bit uncertain of because, uh, I, I mean – Maybe it's because, you know, the, the Doug Ray Scott thing, uh, as much as I think there's issues with his character and the development, I mean, he really was like a huge villain. He was, he was a Bond type villain. And then we had Philip Seymour Hoffman. You knew going in, you were going to get a great villain for Seymour, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Ghost Protocol, again, I'm sorry, I forgot the name of him. He died. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> yeah, at the end of the, we killed him too. <laughs> 
Sorry to the fans of uh, Hendrix from Ghost Protocol and Roger Moore. The Oz Network kills movie stars and spy movies. But um, I wasn't crazy about him. And when I saw Sean Harris, I I think a lot of people immediately were talking, oh, he's a really good actor. This is going to be interesting. And I looked at his filmography. I saw Prometheus. And I'm like, which guy was he in Prometheus? And I'm like, oh, I hated him in Prometheus. (laughs) So it wasn't that crazy about the villain. But again, like I think that he just – he steals. We're gonna, I, I think, have you know, praise for all the actors throughout. But I mean, he stole the movie. Uh, the main one we need to talk about is the change in director because this is almost like J.J. Abrams all over again. And you could argue even Brad Bird. And Tom Cruise now has this history in the Mission Impossible movies of taking directors who aren't really directors. In the case of Brad Bird, not a live action director, and taking a real chance on them with this huge franchise with hundreds of millions of dollars on the line. You know, Christopher, Christopher McQuarrie, who uh, made this movie, he directed two movies prior to this, uh, Way of the Gun in 2000 with Ryan Phillippe, <laughs> which I remember that movie coming out and getting decent reviews. Um, <laughs> Sorry, that's a name that hasn't been mentioned since about 2006. I forgot Phillippe. that was a person. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, whoa! Well, you know, he's, he is a man. We just weren't <laughs> sure about him being a person. <laughs> Right, um, be. Oh not my much peace there on him, so that's the confusion. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not even that funny, but like the guy is just what a name. I'm Ryan Philippi. <laughs> <laughs> but that's um, that you go to comedy line, Ryan Philippi, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but Christopher McQuarrie, um, he got his break with Brian Singer's movie, The Usual Suspects, as a screenwriter. You know, he, he wrote several movies after that. Kind of got hooked up with Tom Cruise. Not in that way. <laughs> well. any rumors this week. <laughs> uh, but uh, with the movie Valkyrie, you know, he wrote that for Tom Cruise, which was also directed by Brian Singer. So when Tom Cruise was making the movie Valkyrie, he, you know, for whatever reason, he really hits it off with the screenwriter, and he starts bringing him on to rewrite a lot of his movies. He actually did a rewrite on um, Ghost Protocol, an uncredited rewrite. Uh, he uh, wrote and directed Jack Reacher for Tom Cruise. Um, recently, he's even done The Mummy for him. Chris McQuarrie was primarily known as a writer, and then Tom Cruise, not on this movie, but t- with Jack Reacher, took a shot on him and said, I've got the rights to this huge book series. Uh, I want you to write it and direct it because I think you'll do something interesting. And then Jack Reacher, against all odds, goes on to become a big hit and... I'm, I'm going to say, I mean, the first movie, I, I love that movie as much as I love the Mission Impossible movies. The second one, not so much. But that's because Christopher McQuarrie got hired to do Rogue Nation instead of Jack Reacher 2. Uh, so here we have a screenwriter coming on. Not even a screenwriter that you would associate with spy movies. I mean, Usual Suspects, Valkyrie, <laughs> these aren't really things that scream Mission Impossible. But then again, neither did The Incredibles and Ratatouille. Uh, neither did Lost and Felicity. <laughs> he just he took a shot on this new guy, and the style he brought to this movie is so unusual. I think one of the most fun things we're going to have talking about here is how he reworked the ending of this movie, too. Uh, but between Jack Reacher and this, I mean, it's crazy that this is the guy who got his break by fluke because he happened to write a movie that this director, Brian Singer, made that went on to become this massive hit, even though nobody should have ever seen the movie. And now, if you're going to compare Brian Singer's career, even pre-certain <laughs> scandals, to Christopher McQuarrie, I think Christopher McQuarrie is blowing him away now. No pun intended there. Um, I, <laughs> uh, 
I really look forward to Mission Impossible 7 being directed by the Judd Apatow or Seth MacFarlane to kind of really take yeah. a real um, a thing. The thing actually that uh, fascinates me here, reading on Chris McQuarrie, he actually created a show that I watched, uh, Persons Unknown, which basically mm. the only reason I got into that show was because Jason Wiles, aka Bosco from Third Watch, uh, was the main star, and I hadn't really seen him in much outside of Third Watch, and it had a really interesting like premise. It was kind of it was kind of almost like the Dome, oh, under the Dome, whatever that show was. That was good for yeah. like five minutes, but basically it was about all these people who kind of woke up in a hotel and didn't know where they were, and they'll be monitored. I think I talked about this before back when we did Twister because Alan Ruck's in it, um, and it like it started off so good, like it was just really really good, but about halfway through the season it just took such a nosedive into of the twists and how terrible it was it got cancelled only lasted about 10 episodes and ended on like a massive cliffhanger that never got resolved uh but i mean it just it started off really good before it turned rubbish it was like 2010 i'm reading here from nbc so yeah i mean it was it was very interesting but i didn't realize he was the guy who basically created that show so there you go and i mean looking through everything else here i've never seen jack reacher i'm sorry i've never seen it um and basically everything else on this list i haven't seen except for x-men um, so, and he was only a writer in that, uh, an uncredited writer in that. So, yep. Okay. Moving on. He did see Ghost Protocol, which he did an uncredited oh, what, rerun what, on. What's Ghost Protocol? I've heard of that. <laughs> uh, Ryan Felipe. Is... Ah, Felipe. <laughs> <laughs> Felipe now. It's, it's, it's his Felipe. <laughs> Felipe. <laughs> Senor Felipe. <laughs> That's where he is. He's probably, like, moved to, like, Guatemala or something. He's, like, their biggest movie star. <laughs> the days of David Hasselhoff of Guatemala. <laughs> oh, goodness. Ryan Phillippe. Phillip. Uh, <laughs> Phillippe. <laughs> one uh, newsworthy thing that um, uh, we'll talk about really quickly. I don't know if you even have any knowledge of this was the whole star Wars mission impossible deal that they had to reach. Um, because this movie, <laughs> Wait, hang on. Is, called... it, is there like an extended universe here that I don't know about? <laughs> no, no, no. But rogue one was getting ready to come out at this point. I mean, well, I guess it was announced. They had started filming it at this point when this movie's coming out and mission impossible, even though they hadn't announced the title of rogue nation until I think when the super bowl commercial aired, uh, you know, in February or something like that. Um, they had registered it long beforehand, and all of a sudden Star Wars comes out and they want to use Rogue One. And obviously, the two completely different titles, but having Rogue something in the title, this is typical American film goers. It's going to cause too much confusion. They're going to walk into Mission Impossible thinking that they're going to see Darth Vader. <laughs> yeah, like that's going to happen. But just to avoid any confusion, uh, there was actually a deal that was in place which said that because Mission Impossible had registered the trademark for Rogue Nation first, Star Wars could not announce the title of Rogue One until after this movie's uh, opening weekend. And I think it was like the opening weekend and within days later, they announced the title of Star Wars Rogue One. But they had, they actually not, not legally obligated as in like, you know, there was, but they, they had made a deal between Paramount and Lucasfilm. Where they said, just don't announce your title until after our movies come out. So, a weird bit of history there um, leading into this. <laughs> always, always no got cross- the two films confused. Uh, that, yeah. that was like our very first episode when they, what, got the sixth day and the sixth sense confused. I mean, look how dumb are Americans. I'm sorry. We've got none on the episode. We can say that. Jesus. It's not, let's, come on, let's not throw it all on Americans. I mean, when I walked into the sixth day the first time, like, cloning, it's like, 
Where's Marlon Wayans? Where's Kadeem Hardison? Where's the, the ghost playing basketball? I had my confusion with the sixth I, man. I, I walked into this film expecting to see Anna Paquin kissing people, sucking all the power out of everyone, but that didn't happen either. So, God, I was so confused. But it's just, it was a weird thing. I don't understand why <laughs> it's a big deal. Two movies of Rogue, and they're coming out a year and a half apart, too, which is even stranger, but... Uh, Anyways, it's not like Star Wars would have ever released anything before Force Awakens came out anyways, but uh, there it is. Uh, first thing that really happens in this movie is also the first bit of publicity that was released. And I think from Ghost Protocol up now to Fallout, it's always a big deal when these movies start filming because the stunts have become such a big deal. And with this one, they knew that all the attention was on the uh, the, the building sequence, the climbing sequence from Ghost Protocol. And they would have to do something to try and top that. You know, I, I think this is so completely different what we get here with the plane stunt. But they put that out there right away. Like first day of filming was filming this stunt. And there was behind the scenes footage of this. I remember clicking on it because it said uh, first behind the scenes footage of uh, the new Mission Impossible movie. And it's a shot, you know, I think a quick shot of Tom Cruise talking to the camera before the plane lifts off. And then he's kind of giving a thumbs up and the plane takes off and you slowly see a dragon. But it's like somebody filming from the ground. And you just see Tom Cruise like getting smaller and smaller in the sky. But they promoted this movie right from the beginning, like when still filming. Hey, we're going to have this incredible stunt. They showed you what the stunt was right from the beginning. And all the trailers were showing you this stunt. You know, the shot of Benji standing up going, oh, my God. And then he's hanging from the plane. And that gave me chills when I saw that in trailers. I was completely shocked when that's the opening scene of the movie. You know, what better way to really... Uh, get the honest attention. Instead of saying, we're going to make you wait until the end, let's do the crazy stunt right up front, which really is The Spy Who Loved Me, which is the movie that started this whole crazy stunt in spy movies. Um, but this, this it's another reason why I really feel like this is very James Bond-like, because this whole pre-title sequence, it just feels like an old-school pre-title sequence. Before the days of, and I love GoldenEye, but like GoldenEye kind of introduced... Our pre-title sequence is going to have to be 25 minutes long. It's going to have to introduce all the plot elements, and it's basically the opening act of the movie. Here is a pre-title scene that really has next to no connection other than a loose mention in one of the first scenes. And it's just a quick, like, four-minute adventure. Uh, They're in Belarus. You get Benji in the grass, in his little grass suit. Uh, Brant is in his position now that they've officially decided they don't want Jeremy Renner to be the new action star of the franchise to take over because Tom Cruise is poison. Now Tom Cruise is popular again, so Jeremy Renner does nothing but talk on a radio from an office most of this movie. He's Hawkeye uh, again. Yeah, he is. He's Hawkeye without the bow and arrow. Now he has a tie. He's still useless. Yeah, he has a Bluetooth headset <laughs> instead of a bow and arrow. <laughs> and Alec Baldwin like instead of Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, hey, hey, like, come on. That's an improvement right there as yeah, far as I'm uh, Absolutely. I know I, who I'd rather. Why? Because he's rocking the chest hair. Scarlet doesn't rock the chest hair like man. that. That's a man right there. We want men in these movies. Uh, did we mention that Scarlett Johansson was cast originally in the Carrie Russell role for Mission Impossible 3? I think oh, we did. No, I don't think we did, but oh well. And you know why they want the Carrie Russell instead? Because she's a man. She's got better <laughs> chest hair. That's a man right there. We apologize to Carrie Russell. We don't actually mean that. <laughs> um, but this whole opening sequence where it's back and forth, you're throwing all the characters out there right away. Benji's there. 
He's phoning up Brant. Brant's talking to Benji. Benji, where's it? And all of a sudden, Ving Rhames is on the line. Luther, what are you doing here? You dropped out of the series last year because we wouldn't pay you enough money. I know, I'm back, baby. <laughs> My best Ving Rhames impression. <laughs> I'm back, baby. He's Elvis. <laughs> Ving Rhames here and Ben. Ving is just doing Benji's job. And I think this is where we're going to start to have some issue with having these two characters in the movie because... Benji was brought in to be a different type of character in Mission Impossible 3, but then they had to combine his role with uh, Ving Rhames for Ghost Protocol because they couldn't reach the deal with Ving Rhames. And now I feel like they're just doing each other's job. Like, there's no reason Benji, of all people, cannot be opening these doors and we need Ving Rhames in Malaysia. I'm in Malaysia, baby. I got the satellite <laughs> hooked up here. <laughs> um, and I got Chester like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Sexy voice. I'm a man. <laughs> Ryan Phillippe. <laughs> Can you just do six degrees search and see if Ryan Phillippe and Bing Rams are closely connected? Uh, it's got to be it. three. <laughs> Uh, but all the characters get introduced here. And, and again, I think just the great thing is having this stunt at the beginning. There's also so much humor in the opening of this movie because this movie definitely goes darker. Not darker to the point where it becomes unwatchable, but it is noticeably darker than Ghost Protocol. I'd say even than 3. 3 had some pretty uh, intense stuff in there with like the, the torture scenes. But like nothing like how this movie is going to go, just how serious and dramatic it is. And I, I just love, like, when he's hanging onto the side and he's like, open the door and they open the wrong door so they, and he, they open the other one and his body just literally blows into the airplane, which is the visual of that. There's no way to, to actually describe how hilarious it looks. Tom Cruise's body flopping all over the place, flying into this airplane. From there, it's just a quick clip it onto your, uh, your harness or whatever. And he gives that Tom Cruise shrug that we mentioned. He kind of invents in Ghost Protocol. He's the guy's looking at well, what are you going to do? And he just blows himself out the back of the airplane. Such a good opening sequence. Um, we should kind of combine uh, a few of the other things in here because it's pretty uh, quick what happens here. Uh, we get the opening credits, which, again, I always love that it incorporates like a TV show where you're showing clips of the movie as the names are coming up and all that. Uh, and then immediately into the spy world. Now, this is the thing that I think this movie stands out best for. We talked about on Double Oz 7 uh, for, in our From Russia With Love episode about how different it was that we had this movie that just exists in its own world of spies. The movie wasn't really about the real world. It was just this world of spies, and they all have their own things. And that's kind of how I feel like Rogue Nation is. In no way is it a connection to the real world, like even Ghost Protocol was, but we need to save the world. This is just about we need to stop bad spies. We, the good spies, need to stop bad spies. And they all have like this little record shop he goes to, and they have their back-and-forth jazz conversation, which... I like the idea of this young girl that's working there. Like, this is her, her first job in the CIA. You know, these people, they go through, like, a year, two years of training to become a secret agent. And it's like, you're going to work in a record shop. And then one day, maybe once a year, somebody's going to come in. They're going to have this back-and-forth jazz conversation with you. You're going to hand them a record. And then they're going to go in there and do their thing. And this is her job at the CIA. Like, this is the worst job ever. Like, if I were her, I'd be going on... Um, some job search website and like, I don't know, look, become a barista or something because th this isn't what you sign up for when you want to become a spy. Uh, somewhere. <laughs> Wayne Gretzky I mean, she, didn't she, start she, playing for the Oilers on day one. Well, I mean, I, I can imagine they have to have these everywhere. You know, he even mentions this is their London terminal. I mean, when you go to Mexico, what is it? You know, 
is it a coffee stand <laughs> when it's you're in Colombia? It's a taco stand. Yeah, in Colombia, it's a cocaine Drug stand. stand. Or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the, their entire in America, job is you just, just like Ryan Philippi. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> in America, you are the, uh, the 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 ticket taker <laughs> at the movie theater that's constantly playing Ryan Philippi's greatest hits. So when that one oh. person mentions, "I'm here to see the Ryan Philippi fest," ah. Uh, that, you that's like, a I weird sentence. Ryan Philippi Are... greatest hits. I don't know what I feel <laughs> about that. <laughs> Can we do a Ryan Philippi month? Come on, we we got one of these oh. for every single episode. Do, do we have enough content? <laughs> <laughs> I know what you did last summer. Um, okay. Fifty four. <laughs> did you ever see Fifty Four? Yeah. Is it the yeah. Crash? Uh. Crash. There you go. <laughs> um. All right. So it's a Ryan Philippi three uh, weeks coming soon to the intentions. <laughs> We gotta include cruel intentions. Oh, come on. You know he plays the same character in every movie. We can just like, <laughs> basically. <laughs> well, Grant Philippi Munch, let's just do one of these films. He's exactly the same character in all of his other three movies. <laughs> and we didn't even, we went through all that. We didn't even mention Way of the Gun, written and directed by Christopher McQuarrie, the topic of this week's episode. <laughs> oh, Ryan Philippi. <laughs> but uh quickly the record shop thing here this just the whole setting is cool this spy world he goes into his booth he puts it on and there's this you know cool hologram that comes up it's like good morning mr hunt and this is the whole mission should you choose to accept it but uh he gets a weird look at one point as he's going through this because it keeps talking about the syndicate would do this and imf believes that and imf and all of a sudden uh he kind of has this weird look like, what did it just say to me? And you realize that this voice talking is talking about IMF as if it's some separate entity. And then you get the whole reveal. It's like, that's right, Mr. Hunt. We are the syndicate and you will die a cold and painful death. It's so over the top. It's so retro. Um, the shot where, you know, he turns around and then you got the villain for the first time, Solomon Lane, who just looks like the most timid unintimidating presence ever and he's got the girl and he's killing her and he's you know the glass and ethan passes out and all that <sighs> such a great open let's just group in here just to speed things along um the uh the the the, the next scene with the escape i guess and the the introduction to ilsa here uh so he's now in jack reacher mode he's shirtless he's chained up Jamie's loving it. He's 50-something years old. Jamie's young dream. <laughs> Tom Cruise <laughs> tied up and chained on a pipe. Remember, only after the age of 52, because why, Jamie? <laughs> oh, she just I said Tom Cruise shirtless, and she blanked out for a second. I just saw something that I thought you would actually want to see directly. I don't know what's happening right now. <laughs> oh, big breaking news to date this episode. James right, Gunn Right, just... over. No, well... <laughs> James Gunn's been fired from directing the Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three. I'm assuming he's only to be replaced by Ryan Philippi. But let's like, date that this was episode. Yesterday, that's not that breaking news. But anyway, moving on. <laughs> breaking news. We were out of town yesterday. Apologies, everybody who's listening to this a week later. He made like, a rape even... joke. So okay. you and I have been fired a long time ago, apparently. Oh, okay. I mean, yeah, he's next in line, I guess, to say something stupid and lose his career. Uh, yeah. <laughs> let's next. not get into politics. Um. Alec Baldwin can do it. Anybody can. Anyways, so... What, make a this rape is- joke? Oh, Paula... Oh, okay. <laughs> Whoa, Ben. You know, if Alec Baldwin's the next victim of this... Not victim, the next... That's the wrong thing to say, Ben. Uh, the next person accused, 
um, this episode. I actually listened to one of the episodes recently where we're praising Kevin Spacey pre everything that happened. So, <laughs> you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, just this whole scene here, we get Ilsa introduced for the first time. We get the Bone Doctor. Like, again, so classic James Bond, but yet it doesn't feel like a James Bond ripoff. It just feels like they're giving us all the things that the Daniel Craig ones, the, the Sam Mendes movies aren't giving us. The Bone Doctor. I mean, that's fantastic. Uh, we get this escape here uh, where they're about to torture him, but Ilsa's like, I'm supposed to do it, not you. And we get this little bickering back and forth. Yoda? <laughs> I'm supposed to. T- <laughs> that was like my nagging Ilsa voice. Let's just make her. <laughs> uh, but anyways, she helps him escape. As we got some cool shots of him shimming his way up this pipey's chain too. Uh, she's got a rabbit's foot. There's a, uh, I guess the one Mission Impossible three reference we have there. Uh, little thing of the rabbit's foot, which again he looks at and he's like, oh, not sure how I feel about that. And as they're getting away, you know, he, he, he's like, we've never met before, right? <laughs> Just this <laughs> little moment. What are you doing? And, um, yeah, Ethan's on the run. He quickly calls up Brant. Uh, we did miss here. There's the scene with Alec Baldwin where uh, he's trying to get the IMF disbanded. And uh, he's even showing that this is where we reference everything. It's like they broke into the, the secure facility in Langley, Virginia. And they're talking about Celia Inoculus. Uh, they mention... Uh, the, the Kremlin from the last movie. Here's the Kremlin before and after. <laughs> a little reveal of the collapsed building. Uh, did, I can't remember if they mentioned anything from the, uh, third movie. There's definitely no mention of the second one here. Yeah, I was gonna say uh, the second one is not mentioned in this film at all, right? Like, chlamydia yeah. was spread across Australia <laughs> thanks to IMF. <sighs> And then, of course, you just have the, the running joke about Brant saying, I can neither confirm nor deny, deny without the Secretary's approval, which is really, it, it seems like just a you know funny joke, but it's actually a setup for how the movie's going to end because they've been operating now for the last year, year and a half or whatever since Ghost Protocol is supposed to take place without a secretary, which means they're not accountable to anybody. So when Ethan finally gets through to Brant, which um, I should probably stop at some point here, but I can't keep, I can't stop you. Keep going. This is all, like the, the first ever episode where somebody just goes over the whole <laughs> yeah. thing and I'm going to catch up. There you go. Um, just a cool moment I just want to mention when he does call Brant is when he's doing his codes and everything after escaping. And he says, uh, yeah, he, he's giving his code or whatever. And he goes, Bravo, Echo 1-1. That's a direct repeat of Mission Impossible 1 when the team all dies and he calls Kidridge for the first time. And he has the same, you know, code that he has to give when he calls in. And he says, Bravo, Echo, 1-1. And then when he gets connected to the next person, they say, this is whoever. And it says, go secure. And then all of a sudden you hear this beep and it's like, okay, our line's secure now. And then he goes into it. Chris from Macquarie talked about how he he wanted to take a moment from the first movie and play it from the other side. So in the first movie, we're, we, we're seeing Tom Cruise and we're just hearing the other side of the conversation. He wanted to have like, when, when an IFM agent calls in, let's see it from the other side. Let's have Ethan calling, but now we're actually seeing the guy at the switchboard and we're seeing them connect the call and we're seeing him encrypt the call and all that. Uh, so it's a cool little nod to the first one, which, I mean, it's been four or five weeks now. You've probably already forgotten it. <laughs> so. Did I watch that? Uh, did I? Not, oh. Yeah, you did watch the first one, but, uh, this is a whole setup for the movie, uh, really in just three sequences here, but all the characters get introduced. I mean, I, I just love the spy world setting, like I said, more than anything else. Like everything that happens here is all just in its own contained world. All the characters are all in the spy world 
whether it's the syndicate or the IMF or even the CIA is completely in there. Like the close thing we have to an outsider in this movie is this Senate hearing. <laughs> These senators who are aware of the IMF's existence, that's the closest connection we have to the outside world in this entire movie. And Alec Baldwin's chest hair, basically. Exactly, it's just, yeah. It's like the Amazon rainforest. You know, it's unique <laughs> and it breathes and stuff. Man. Um, <laughs> Ryan Phillippe has a... Uh, Ving Rhames have a, a Baker number of two. Uh, so, <laughs> Ryan Phillippe was in Crash with Matt Dillon. Matt Dillon then was in The Saint of Fort Washington with Ving Rhames. There you go. Oh. Um, oh, isn't that the one where Rebecca Ferguson played uh, maid number six or whatever? Yes. She was house guest number three. Um, so we've gone back to text explaining the country. Um, yeah. so, <laughs> Minsk, Belarus. <laughs> I just, I love the everything wrong with videos when they point this out. They're just kind of like, in case you confuse it with Minsk, Minnesota. <laughs> just little things like that. This whole opening scene is just great, though. Like, yeah, the the whole plane section is amazing, and I just love the you know, open the door, not that door, the other door. Um, and can I just point out that uh, when Ving Rhames is in Kuala Lumpur and he's up on that uh, the KL Tower, I've been up that tower. Just slight little brag. I'm not like the another Ving Rhames was. You've got two locations. I have. What was the other one? Sydney. Sydney. Yeah. <laughs> Mission Impossible 2. Oh, that's right. I remember that movie. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's, you can view Kuala Lumpur from it. It's a tower, funnily enough. Um, but yeah, I love the little nod thing that he gives. <laughs> like, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> and get sucked out of the plane. <laughs> It's just so funny. Like, the difference between this and James Bond, I guess, is James Bond would have a little one-liner there or something like that. Whereas, you know, all Ethan Hunt needs to do is just kind of have a little nod. Like, eh, whatever. Um, it would have been so funny, though, like, if we cut to this and there's no parachute and it, like, blows up on the ground and, you know, poor old Minsk, Minnesota gets gassed or something like that. Um, so, yeah, it's a uh, fantastic opening. Um, but can I just say, I've got a bit of a crush on this record shop girl, um, and I've looked her up, she's legal age, don't worry. Uh, <laughs> Hermione Caulfield is her name, she was actually in Star Wars The Last Jedi, she played A-Wing pilot Tally, so there you go, uh, she Ooh, went from being in a good film was, to a shit film. Yeah, it was all downhill from record shop girl in Rogue well, she, Nation. This is only her second ever role, she was previously in Mr. Holmes, whatever that is. She then went to be in Endeavor, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, Fallen, Triple X, Return of Xander Cage. Uh, so, like, really going downhill, because then she was in King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. Don't put uh, poor old Hermione in an uh, episode or a movie. You're screwed. Um, so, anyway, but um, I'm sad that she gets killed here. It's kind of, like, is this meant to be played as a bit of flirtation between these two? Because it is a little bit creepy. Um, because, well, okay, no, you don't think so? I mean, I, I think in a way, but well, I'll get to my theory on that when we get closer to the end. I think there's a reason why they do scenes like this. I, I mean, Tom Cruise doesn't age, but he has aged slightly in this film. Gotta say, like, a couple of wrinkles showing up there, Tommy boy. Uh, I mean, was this, when did he get divorced from Katie Holmes? Was it about here or was it earlier? Uh, ask Jamie. I she knows was, all this, doesn't she? It was probably just after Ghost Protocol, I think. Right. So he's been single pretty much since, right? Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> just on my, uh, you know, 
Tom Cruise, um, you know, knowledge of his marriage and stuff. They got divorced in 2012. There you go. So, yes, just after Ghost Protocol. So, this is his first single Mission Impossible film. So, that's why he's maybe just having a bit of a flea. He's no longer can go to his wife like, hey, you know your hot friend? Can she be in our movie so I can make out with them? Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> there is And that. is it weird that this is the first movie where he doesn't even, like... Because even in Ghost Protocol, there's no love story at all. But he still... He, he, he made sure that they wrote a scene so he could kiss Paula Patton. He does maybe, nothing in this movie to any woman. Maybe that is legitimately why. Like, I'm single now. Screw women! That's why he gets, yeah. like, very close to Benji in this film. It's like, okay, <laughs> truth is coming out. I want Alec Baldwin just, in this film. Uh, he's holding <laughs> out for Ryan Phillippe. <laughs> yes, exactly. So him and Henry Cavill in uh, Fallout is going to be oh. a... Jamie. God, Jamie just blew ahead then. <laughs> <laughs> what? Henry Cavill and Tom Cruise make out? <laughs> Shut up and take my money. Uh, <laughs> But, um, yeah, this whole sort of, like, torture scene, like, wasn't, um, the Bone Doctor and Angelina Jolie movie? Um, <laughs> <laughs> the Bone Collector. I'm like, oh, isn't worst. this some sort of, like, spin-off? Oh. <laughs> worst Denzel Washington movie ever. Oh, come on. They're, that's, that, that's a sentence that's never been uttered, just like Ryan Felipe in the last ten years. <laughs> so. <laughs> Felipe now. <laughs> I can't even say his name. <laughs> Ryan Fufu. <laughs> The least, the least famous Ryan. Is he Canadian? Like, is it like? <laughs> I don't know who the other two are. So, I mean, uh, no, he's American. Oh, thank God for that. Uh, he's from Newcastle, <laughs> Delaware. Well, that explains it. He's from Delaware. Delaware. Um, <laughs> no wonder he's so forgettable. Um, but hello to all our listeners in Delaware today. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it's great. I I kind of like that bit where the bone. Collector Dr. Denzel Washington, like, <laughs> takes his ring off and then licks his finger. Like, that's kind of just, like, really weirdly evil, but it's sort of, is, is this just meant to be Stamper from Tomorrow Never Dies? <laughs> like, I'm expecting to say, like, Pretty I much, hope to yeah. break his new record. <laughs> like, he's, what did he say? Like, his record was 18 hours. I hope to break it. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it was his uh, accent, but you got the line right. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hope want, to um, break his record. <laughs> is it Dr. Kaufman? Oh, stop, huh? Can yeah. you not be yelling in my ear, yeah? <laughs> Over-the-top German henchman. Like, <laughs> I could shoot you from Hitler's Stuttgart and still make it like, like an accident. <laughs> this is very embarrassing. See, Do you have the code for your car? <laughs> I heard Ryan Felipe. Uh, Felipe. <laughs> Audition for that role. He was too young and attractive. Oh, the perils of being a Ryan in Hollywood. Uh, name other famous Ryans. Uh, Ryan Murphy. I mean, he's a smart writer, but uh, <laughs> Ryan Affleck. Uh, I don't know. There probably is one out there. Ryan, Ryan Baldwin. <laughs> Ryan Baldwin. Ryan Affleck. <laughs> I'm making these up. I hope you realise. Oh. <laughs> Ryan Cranston. Uh, <laughs> Ryan Adams. <laughs> Ryan Heidick. Uh, <laughs> oh, goodness me. Um, yeah, I mean, this is all great stuff. And, uh, yeah, like the, the bit where, um, 
He's on the pipe and he's kind of like climbing. What, what is it with the evil people and not having something attached to the wall? I mean, I would assume that this guy's like an international assassin. Record shop owners know who he is. He's that famous. <laughs> You're just going to put him on a pipe like that? You're not going to tie his legs up? Like, come on, syndicate. You're so smart that you can actually track them down by finding the whole, like, this is your mission, should you choose to accept it? Which is a great scene, by the way. I was not expecting that. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, and we get our first Tom Cruise running scene here. Tom Cruise running shirtless. Uh, It's pretty good. (laughs) With or without chest hair, it's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, whack a bit of chest hair on Tom Cruise, you know? Like, why not? Uh (laughs) You really have something against hairless men. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, it shows manliness. Um, I mean, did, you, you, you did say on multiple episodes now that, like, <laughs> y- your girth of chest hair is up there with Sean Connery land. <laughs> it, it, I, I'm the Pierce Brosnan of the people I know. Like, <laughs> the chest hair I've got. And again, you, like, wax so judgmental of those of us that are not blessed with your hairiness of the chest. Haven't you established that I have a thing for a certain length of hair on these episodes? <laughs> Short-haired there's, women, but long-haired, chested men. There's something unnatural to me about men with no chest hair, like there's something unnatural to me about women with short hair. I'm sorry, I call a spade a spade, and that's how I see life, all right? I don't have these multicoloured lenses that the world shares. I'm a stereotype when it comes to my men having long hair and my women having long hair, all right? I own my my bigotry, and I'll move on with it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if we titled our episodes, this episode would has got to be Ben's a bigot. <laughs> <laughs> Which, honestly, people would be like, oh, about time. They finally put it on there. <laughs> uh, like, he's finally admitting it. <laughs> but, like, seriously, like, if you ever one day wake up with chest hair and you have Jamie run her fingers <laughs> through your chest hair, there's no better feeling, all right? Like, it's just, it's, you know... It's all for the washboard abs and all look at me as a block of cheese. Let's grate some cheese on your abs. But, you know, add a bit of hair in there and it's great. Like, you know, <laughs> is that a bit of grated cheese or a bit of chest hair? Who knows? It's fun. It's Wednesday. Let's just get you're to saying, it. You're saying that, like, I don't know, about 16 inches below your chest hair, there's washboard abs and just nobody will ever see it. <laughs> exactly. That's why I'm so fat. Like, it's just hair. It's like it's body hair. I'm not actually fat. I'm quite skinny, but it's just it's just the hair. All right, it's and all hair. It's all <laughs> hair. I'm cousin it. I'm just I'm going to town with it. Um, all right, but anyway, yes. Yeah, so Tom Cruise is running, no chest hair. Uh, but I do I do like the um the bit where Alec Baldwin comes up and it's kind of like this will be the last free day that Ethan Hunt is on Earth or whatever. And it comes up with six months. Oh later. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, can we just, just can we just seriously take a moment in time before something happens with him in a couple of weeks, probably, and just say how awesome Alec Baldwin is? Like, just right now, oh, yeah. right now, yeah. Alec Baldwin, you are awesome. Okay, just I'm stopping Look, every time right now before something gets accused against you. You're awesome. <laughs> All right, said it. Have you ever seen the match game that he hosts? Uh, no. Oh, like, just just look up even a YouTube clip of it. There has never in history been a game show host as entertaining as Alec Baldwin because he goes out there and comically will just tell everybody how bad they are. Like, the the guests on the show, the contestants, he'll be like, that was a thoroughly awful answer. Thank you very much. <laughs> just, 
He's my hero. He's just, and you add to that that he's like he's Jack. He's the original Jack Ryan. You know, he's uh, the the boss in two Mission Impossible movies now. I mean, this guy's so closely connected to like great franchises, um, and he's got glorious chest hair. He's got it all well, going on. I, I just think the thing with Alec Baldwin is is that he's so good at being able to transition between com- comedic and serious roles. It's that. I mean, I got so used to him in 30 Rock that I kind of, going into this, just kind of like, oh, can I see him as a serious actor again? And, like, you do, like, straight away. And I realised that's where he came from. Uh, he was in, uh, we, I mean, at the time of recording this, we've just finished recording all our Nip Tuck episodes. He was in an episode of Nip Tuck, and to me, that has now been voted as the best episode of Nip Tuck ever. Not just because he's in it, but um, essentially, spoiler alert, don't listen from here if you've never... Actually, no, I won't spoil it because you've never seen it. I don't want you to ruin the surprise of what happens with a certain character. But he's connected to Famke Jansen. Let's just put Alec Baldwin and Famke Jansen together, and there's mind-blown, amazing couple. So, anyway, yeah, Alec Baldwin, you're a legend. Hashtag Alec Baldwin 2020. I do want to blow your mind on something else, too. Um, Ryan Phillippe has worked in the last decade. What? Uh, in 2010... <laughs> He played Lieutenant Dixon Piper on an episode of WWE Monday Night Raw, <laughs> followed by, in 2016, he played the role of Ryan Phillippe on WWE SmackDown Live. And I, and I heard he had to fight for that part, because I'm Alec Baldwin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, actually, the thing here that I'm actually seeing is that I do actually remember this, because I was a big fan of the TV show Damages, and he was, I think that might have been the final season. I think he kind of played like... um. Oh, what's that? That um, Julian Assange, like he was kind of like you know WikiLeaks guy, like oh yeah, version of that. Uh, and he actually was pretty good in that. Funnily enough, damages very underrated show. But um, <laughs> oh, cause the the fact that he basically has to resort to WWE now. Um, <laughs> and you know what's great is that the first time he appeared on air, they wouldn't even let him appear. They're like Hugh Jackman shows up on WWE television. It's like, there's Hugh Jackman. He's in there in the ring. He's, he's, you know, clotheslining somebody. Ryan Phillippe shows up. Can I be on the air? It's like, sure, you'll play Lieutenant Dixon Piper. <laughs> well, you know he's going to go on to be president. I mean, Donald Trump was on WWE. So. <laughs> he's, he's been in two music videos. He was in, and two good songs too. Every You, Every Me by Placebo. Then he was a TV host in Hey Ya's, um, Hey Ya video. So there you go. Um, <laughs> And you know what? Oh. He was in Playing by Heart in 1998 with Sean Connery. Oh, I'm just looking at his award reel here. Uh, nominated for Golden Raspberry Worst Actor for 54. Um, oh, look at this. He won the Florida Film Critics Circle Award for Best Ensemble Cast. Oh, I'm sure that's on his uh, resume. For Crash, I'm assuming, right? No, for Dawson Park. <laughs> WWE Raw. <laughs> Best oh, ensemble cast. The nominees are John Cena, The Undertaker, and Ryan Felipe. You know, the best thing here is actually his most outstanding award was in 2014. He won for the Eric Andre Show, the best actor at the prestigious Pencil Awards. <laughs> the Pencil Awards? But bunch of pencils get together. <laughs> like, it's an award. This is how prestigious it is. It's an award... Not even prestigious enough that they're unwilling to erase it from existence. Like it's not even this is inked in pen. Your award is penciled in. It's 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 how awards are in like this part of history because you know you get accused of something soon, so they'll just erase it from history. 
Oh, my Lord. Ryan Filippi. Can we just start Ryan Filippi Oz? I can't even say his name properly. Filippi. Filippi. His name's not even right. It's Matthew Ryan Filippi. Like, ooh, Matthew. Yeah, can we we just add the Felipe as the French pronunciation? Let's just come up with a new accent. For, you finish, figure out how the German pronunciation of Ryan Philippi is. Oh, it's just something angry. Felipe! Uh, <laughs> I don't know. He was married to Reese Witherspoon. There you go. He was. And an Australian he was engaged to as well, Abby Cornish. Oh, oh, really? Oh, well, you know, I had respect for Abby Cornish. Um, he also had a brief fling with Tom Cruise in 2012. Oh, who hasn't? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on here. <laughs> Our longest conversation is not my grouping of half an hour of this movie in the opening. It was Ryan Philippios <laughs> coming soon. RPO. <laughs> you did mention, again, that great transition, which I, I love. The, the subtle bits of humor, because I think Ghost Protocol, the humor was very... It was very obvious it was like right in your face not in any way cheesy but it was just the jokes were like flying all over the place and it was a a funny movie here the jokes are very subtle like you said with the the whole this will be his last day as a free man and then immediately cut you six months later (laughs) havana cuba and you see him he's got like an osama bin laden beard after six months um which I think this is the first time I've ever seen outside of Born on the Fourth of July. It's the first time I've ever seen facial hair on Tom Cruise. Looks a little bit weird, to be honest. This definitely looked like fake. I, I don't even think the color matched his hair, which is what made it weirder. Because he has like this jet black hair in this movie, and he's got this bright bushy red beard for some reason. <laughs> like some he great does his own stunts, but he doesn't do yeah. his own facial hair. <laughs> that that uh, that. Facial hair was actually just combed from Alec Baldwin's chest. <laughs> <laughs> it was found on his floor. Tom, would you like yeah. to use some of my hair? Oh, no, wait, it's red. It's Simon Pegg's chest hair. Sorry. All right, okay. Simon, Simon Pegg's pubes. Yeah. <laughs> speaking of Simon Pegg... Um, <laughs> speaking he's of very... pubes... <laughs> but Simon Pegg, now, as, as we're cutting back and forth between a whole bunch of things going on here, and, and this is just really clever filmmaking from a screenwriter kind of learned how to direct by watching brian singer that's the only thing he learned how to do watching brian singer by the way but he's now he's coming up with like these cool little cut things that actually kind of mess with the audience and i think the thing that most impressed me walking out of this movie was that they really brought back the whole uh style of messing with the audience's mind i mean i know you had moments in two and three in Ghost Protocol, where you're thoroughly confused. And in all honesty, I probably did too. It's just I've seen these movies so many times, and once you've seen it this many times, you don't remember being fooled the first time. With this movie, I remember being fooled because I loved how they would go back and forth uh, with him doing the push-ups and the teams like getting ready to storm in. And then they got the stuff with uh, Benji there later on. Like There's a lot of like back and forth. And when the, the team comes in and you realize that there's just a camera there and Tom Cruise is in a completely different country, they cut to the shot of the Eiffel Tower outside, which also was really funny. I didn't even notice it until I watched it this past time. That This is, again, a complete throwback to the first movie, that scene where Max is trying to boot up the hard drive and they got the shots of Kitridge and his team you know, uh, showing up at the building and coming up the stairs with their guns and then they'd go back to Max and you think it's the same building but then they fool you and it's something completely different. This one completely fooled me. Um, I still remember being like, what's going on? Like, are they going to catch him this quickly in the movie? Uh, 
But I, I just love that shot where it goes to the Eiffel Tower. Like the little subtle things they do in this are what make this movie funny. Uh, there's the drawings he has all over the wall, and Brant is now paired up with as they've been assimilated into the CIA. Brant's paired up with Alec Baldwin, and uh, you know Brant notices the drawings on the wall he has. And the whole idea here is that Hunley. Alec Baldwin's character has said the syndicate's a figment of Ethan Hunt's imagination. And this moment here where you see all of these diagrams and newspaper clippings, it's supposed to be selling, I guess, Hunley's side that this is just Ethan's weird obsession and he's making this all up. But, like, does the audience forget at this point the final scene of Ghost Protocol where Ethan gets his iPod mission? It says, your next mission should choose to accept it. A rogue organization calling themselves the syndicate. You guys told him the syndicate existed, and now all of a sudden, Ethan's making it all up. Pretty much the only plot hole I could think of in this movie. Um, but he's got the pictures all over, which I like that the drawings actually match the style of drawing that he did on his hand of Hendrix in Ghost <laughs> Protocol. I would have loved to have seen Ethan just having like all over his body little pencil <laughs> or pen yeah, drawings. When, he, when he's running with his no chest hair through the thing, he's just got all these drawings <laughs> on his body. <laughs> Here's one of the bone doctor on his right nipple. <laughs> <laughs> and, to, and to really keep it, like, you know, in sync with all the Mission Impossible movies, they're just, like, actual, the, all the villains. <laughs> There's John Voight. <laughs> Dougree Scott. Philip Scott Hoffman. Hoffman. <laughs> the guy that died last week. <laughs> Hitler from Valkyrie. <laughs> the aliens uh, of War of the World. <laughs> Nicole Kidman <laughs> Katie Holmes <laughs> Oprah The Couch Anybody opposing Scientology Anthony Edwards Oh too soon Ben, too soon No, too soon <clears throat> uh, But Back to the movie <laughs> We'll keep it under three hours we'll keep it under three hours <laughs> Uh, he's got these drawings and he's got the one of Ilsa and the one of Lane. And this is what Brant notices right away. And I think Brant's trying to sell, well, this is clearly real, but like Hunley's not having it. And we get the, the, the stuff with Benji here, which I'm going to call this, I guess, one of two plot holes in the movie. Benji hates his job here. You know, he's basically playing Halo at work. And then they call him in for his polygraph. And maybe he hates it because he's like, I don't like they disbanded the IMF, but he just seems so miserable in this job. He even talked about later on of not wanting to go back to his desk job. Again, do we forget part three when Ethan's calling him for help at the end and he's like, I like my job. I don't want to lose my uh, visa. I don't want to go back to England. Uh, like, he loved his job before and all of a sudden he's just back to his old job, but he doesn't like it for some reason. Uh, you know, life in the field with Ethan Hunt, nothing compares to it. And... So he goes through this polygraph thing, which is great, and um, I guess this is the one part, because I always talk about how Benji's the character the audience identifies with because he's not the world's greatest spy, but he can fool a polygraph here, uh, which again, if they're giving these people polygraphs, they got to know they know how to fool it, and they ask him, you know, have you seen or had any contact with Mr. Hunt? He goes, he's not my friend. Uh, when he comes back to his desk, uh, he had this envelope that was delivered to him which is tickets to the opera in Vienna, which I love that it immediately cuts to him going there. And I just, 
I, I get that visual of Benji hopping off the train. He's in his tuxedo. It's like, I want tickets to the opera. And he doesn't even bother to think, I never entered a contest. <laughs> he looks so <laughs> happy. He looks so happy yeah. when he opens that envelope. Like, oh, look at me go. <laughs> and like, I don't know. This may also, not plot hole, but inconsistent with Benji's character. Do you think a guy who sits there playing Halo at work, that the number one thing that's going to get him to spend his weekend sleeping on an airplane? Because like, how how long of a flight is it to Vienna and then back? And yet, it's the opera in Vienna, whatever this opera is. Like, Ethan has to know whatever I'm going to give him is going to be the one thing that will get him all the way out here. Like, could it have been a Halo convention there? But, like, no, the opera, like, just that, that doesn't suit Benji as far as I'm concerned. Nine hours and five minutes that flight is from Washington, D.C. to Vienna. So that's two ways, too. And that's with no delays, by the way. <laughs> and then the time of the opera, which is probably also nine hours and something minutes. <laughs> but he gets off the train, and um, it, he gets the glasses, read the envelope, and he opens it up, and there's the glasses, the earpiece, and he's like, Ethan, I thought I won tickets to the opera. It's like, Benji, you fool. <laughs> you didn't enter a contest. Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> Or did he know that Benji, Benji actually did win this other, I want to see the scene where he opens up, I won everybody, I won! And it's one <laughs> ticket. Like, what contest do they give you one ticket? Like, when I entered- Halo players. <laughs> well, guys who play Halo at work, they don't have a girlfriend to bring. Um, <laughs> but like, when I won tickets to the Justice League advanced screening last year, you know when I entered that, it wasn't like, here is your one ticket with no date. I mean, granted, most guys showing up to Justice League are going to have a dick to bring. But still, they don't give you one ticket. This movie's full of plot holes, Ben. Let's say it. Bin it now. Real problems Shit movie. Here. Mission Impossible <laughs> 2 is better. I just want to give a pleasant shout-out to a fellow podcast. Um, this, this is on topic, by the way. The Movie Mavericks, who recently covered a retrospective episode on Face Off, which... Uh, I, I was very impressed with one guy on the podcast who said it was such a great movie and the other guy who said how garbage it was and then went on to praise how Mission Impossible 2 was John Woo's greatest American film. Oh. Uh, so both a criticism, a shame, and thank you for covering Face Off at least. Um, the Spectre, <laughs> etc. of movie episodes. Yes, uh. <laughs> the movie matters. You guys are our new Spectre, etc. <laughs> <laughs> The greatest American film of John Woo's career, Mission Impossible 2. Jesus. Uh, yeah, real problems there. Anyways, back to the movie. <laughs> so <laughs> he tells Benji, you're, you're here to help me catch this guy. Do you know who he is? Uh, I like the little gadget he has, which is basically the program. It's like a paper program, but it completely projects like a computer screen. Looks really cool. And this whole opera sequence, I mean, this is fantastic. And it, again, it's something straight out of a Bond movie. This is like the opera scene in Quantum of Solace and Living Daylights. Uh, but it still feels different. And uh, um, Benji's entire job is just to look at faces, which I find funny. He sits in the back, and it's just shot after shot of people sitting in the stands. And Ethan says to him, I need you, Benji, because this is not a one-man job. Like, he's made all these connections. We saw that blackboard thing he has in his apartment in Havana or whatever. All the work that he does just by himself. This is the man who climbed the tallest building in the world by himself. This is a man who stopped nerve gas from being bought by hanging out of a moving airplane, you know, uh, thousands of feet in the air by himself. He says, I need to look at faces of people sitting in the crowd. 
this is not a one-man job, Benji. <laughs> <laughs> He's gotten lazy in his six-month layoff here. Uh, because all Benji is doing is looking at faces, but I can't fault the sequence at all because it's, it's, it's incredible. Again, it's, the, the way that Christopher Quarry edits back and forth is what makes this. And, and it's still messing with the audience's mind. You know, you, you cut to a quick shot of Ilsa showing up. And then you cut to a shot of this guy who's killing a security guard and coming in. You're not sure what he's doing. And then you got like three or four snipers at one point. They're all over the place. And you know the chancellor of whatever is here. And that's Austria. what their targets. <laughs> Austria, yeah. Hey, Colin's favorite country or whatever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know that great country near Germany? Whatever. You're missing a couple of letters there, Australia. Uh, typo <laughs> plot hole in this movie. <laughs> but, like, uh, I don't know. The, the, especially when it gets to the fight scene. This is where it gets really good because you have snipers all over the place. And when Ethan's about to take this one shooter out and he jumps on the scaffolding and the scaffolding immediately rises up. It's just it's such a great shot, this fight scene where the guy all of a sudden rises himself. Or he just stands up and Ethan's suddenly like, this guy's like seven and a half feet tall. <laughs> I'm five <laughs> foot four. What am I going to do here? I love this fight scene. I love just everything, that, how crazy it is with all these characters. And just having the, there's something about, like, the, I think the Living Daylights and Quantum Solace hit on it too. Having the, this really ominous operatic music playing in a big spy action scene just really suits the movie. And then, of course, in the end, what happens is. Everybody shoots everybody, but they're, none of them are shooting who you think they're going to shoot. I don't even know if there's a way to properly explain this. Uh, it, who shoots the ambassador? Um, yeah, okay, so Ilsa shoots the other sniper. I've seen this movie, like I said, six or seven times, and I'm still trying to figure out what happens here. Ilsa shoots the other sniper. Benji takes out one other guy. The Ethan shoots dude. the ambassador, who he's trying to save. Chancellor. The chancellor. <laughs> Of Australia, <laughs> something. <laughs> Poor Austria. <laughs> Ryan Phillip, he's watching this all happen, <laughs> wondering why he doesn't have a role in it. <laughs> it's such a crazy scene. Um, when uh, they do the getaway, too, I just love uh, they they go onto the the drain pipe and this Tom Cruise shrug. Like I can't get over how brilliant just a little gesture Tom Cruise is incorporating in these movies is. Just this shrug. Ilsa and uh, Ethan get do this getaway thing where they're uh, I guess I don't know shimming down this pipe and and sliding down that they're, they're uh, not a pipe. What is it? Like flagpole, I guess. And they rappel down this thing. And they start to walk away. They're like, we made a clean getaway. And then the whole thing collapses behind them. And he just stops in his track, kind of looks at her and gives that same shrug. Like, what are you going to do? <laughs> so funny. Uh, they get in the getaway car with Benji. And Benji's like, are you crazy? She tried to kill me. That doesn't make her a bad person. <laughs> Which, again, in the context of this movie, that line makes sense. Like, why I love this movie so much is because the humor works on two levels. You can play that same scene, and that line is not necessarily a joke. It is him actually trying to say, hey, she's not a bad person. You're just misunderstanding. But it also just works as a hilarious joke. And, and the same thing to be said for when he starts pulling the weapons out of her. Because this is where she's going over, you know, uh, or he's kind of giving his theory about her and all that. And they're finding out what Lane's up to. And... Uh, um, the, 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 the he starts pulling like weapon up after weapon a hair clip oh, there's a knife and he's pulling this out of her shoe and there's a knife and here's 
this and this. And it's just weapons everywhere. And it should be like every time he pulls out a weapon, he just has like a look on his face like, who is this woman? <laughs> but instead, he's a spy. He's like, I don't I don't think anything of it. And she's got weapons everywhere. It's it's hilarious to me. And then her escape here, the there's the lipstick and all that. It's a, be careful. It's very difficult to get that shade, which, of course, comes up later. You think it's a joke, but it has uh, a real importance in the plot here. Um and uh, I guess the big thing I also missed here was that after all this stuff to save the the, the Chancellor of Ambassador of Aus- Austria, <laughs> of Austria, uh, a car bomb goes off and he's dead anyways. Um, he ends up letting her go, as she says, as they're being chased. You have to let me go, otherwise that's the only way it's going to look like an escape because she's deep undercover in Lane's operation. That's why she saved him twice. Um, how am I going to find you? You have everything you need. She jumps out of the car, and that's it. <laughs> the end. Oh, sorry. I Keep going. I, just, I, just say, I love the opera scene. I love this whole getaway. I love Ilsa's character. Like This is what a mysterious character should be. All the time you have movies like this, like they try to do the same thing with Halle Berry and Dinah Today, where you're not quite sure what her allegiance is. You literally have no clue what Ilsa's allegiance is through this movie. But yet there's an important part that's going to come later on where they're analyzing the pictures and says he trusts her. And that's kind of the thing. Like even as the audience, you still trust her, but like you have no clue what this woman's doing the whole time. Colin Hilding referencing Dinah Another Day again. Good to see. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> I don't even have to mention it anymore. I've affected everyone. Um... Yeah, I mean, everything you say, like this whole, um, uh, no, I've got to go back before the opera scene, don't we? We've got Benji. Um, the, just, the, well, speaking of Die Another Day, Cuba, uh, we're in Havana. Dalecteros. I want him in a Hawaiian shirt, driving an old Cuban car <laughs> and, uh, you know, going through a laser clinic and having Yao and everything there. Zao, Yao, Zao. Good job, Ben. You know the movie you love. Um, <laughs> yes, that was. Um, but I do like when Benji's playing Halo. Fun trivia fact for you. That actually was uh, Halo 5 Guardians, a game that wasn't actually released at the time of this movie. It was to be released three months later. There you go. I actually have never played Halo before in my life, but uh, just mm. thought I would be cool and say that. Because <laughs> uh, that, that's what all the kids listening to this podcast are waiting for, to identify with Ben because he plays Halo 5. Now I'm going to start mentioning Fortnite or whatever the fuck that game is. Uh, I'm still Look, trying to work if, out what it is. If being a man's man with real chest hair doesn't make him cool enough, kids, then you got no business listening to this show. Believe me, uh, there's a problem if the kids like my chest hair. That's what the police say. <laughs> but, um, read my last restraining order but uh i do like when he's on the um the lie detector and he's like i'm the king of norway and it's actually no i'm the second in line second in line for the thing and the heartbreaking moment when he's like he's not my friend um, and, then, and like, you see a little on, blip yeah Ooh, and later on we hear that bit when he's like i have to lie every week to say that you're not my friend oh benji <laughs> Oh, you poor little sod. I'll be your friend. Your one ticket to the to the <laughs> opera. <laughs> but like, I just just the logistics of this, right? Okay, so this is say Thursday afternoon. <laughs> like, just you imagine you're at work and you get a letter. You've won a ticket to Austria to see 
the to see the opera. <laughs> to now, meet okay, the he Chancellor works, in person. He he works for the CIA, so he's probably got a bit of cash. But like, who in their right mind, all of a sudden, just has the dosh laying in their uh, bank account to book a last minute flight to <laughs> Austria? Um, I think Benji's a bit of an Austrian fanboy because then even when we show up to the actual, excuse me, the opera. The first thing you do is we see this guy get out of the car and he's like to Ethan, that's the Chancellor of Austria. (laughs) I have Googled the Chancellor of Austria right now. It is a guy called Sebastian Kurtz. The guy looks like Ryan Phillippe because he looks like he's about 12. Uh, He's (gasps) the youngest serving uh, leader in the world except for the Captain Regent of San Marino coming soon to Netflix. (laughs) Seriously, Google the Chancellor of Austria. He looks like a little kid. You think Justin Trudeau looks young? This guy should be in a nappy still. But the point is, how, like, is Benji just a world leader fanboy? Like, that's the Captain Regent of San Marino. (laughs) You know, he doesn't even know Austria is a country. (laughs) I mean, there's people who go like, there's people who go crazy over, like, the royal family, and Benji's like that with anything from Austria. Like, he's got teacups with the Chancellor's face on it, you know. He sat up all night watching Sebastian <laughs> What-His-Name's uh, wedding to Meghan Markle at 3 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> he loves everything to do with Austria. He is Hitler's number one fan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, and Arnold, okay, we should really put Arnold Schwarzenegger in that category. The, the only famous Austrian isn't Adolf Hitler, people. Arnold Schwarzenegger exists. <laughs> what do you think of when you think of Austria? Um, the Chancellor, uh, <laughs> Hitler, <laughs> and Arnold Schwarzenegger, in that order, and kangaroos. Um, I actually had a friend at uni, she was from Austria, and she said that there they actually have T-shirts they sell in Austria. There are no kangaroos in Austria because just everyone is like, oh, Australia. No, Austria. Um, <laughs> watch the opening moments of Dumb and Dumber. That's a lovely accent you have there. New Jersey, Austria. Well, good day, mate. Throw another shrimp on the barbie. Um, oh, when's Jim Carrey month coming soon? It's funny you mentioned when you, like all the weapons are being pulled out. That just reminded me of the mask. When it's like pulling yeah. all the weapons out. It's like, rubber chicken, <laughs> bazooka. I have a permit for that. <laughs> Anyway, um, yeah, this whole opera scene is just absolutely incredible. Uh, I mean, the best out of all those ones you mentioned, I have to say. Uh, I mean, look, yeah. I was actually a fan of it in Quantum of Solace, and I don't like that movie, but I still really love the opera scene, and, you know, I like The Living Daylights. But, yeah, this whole sequence, like, it, it go. how long does it go for? At least 15, 20 minutes? Surely, it's, it's a long scene, but you're not at any point bored. It's tense and just... The way the setup is with the sniping and then just the, the music in the background when Ness and Dormer plays, it's like, holy crap, this is incredible. Um, and then, you know, yeah, Tom Cruise essentially becomes an assassin of a world leader, almost, um, <laughs> by shooting him in the shoulder. But I mean, that is just so bloody smart. Like, you got two people pointing the guns at this guy, like, how are you going to do this? Oh, I know. I'll just shoot him instead. Uh, that's what that guy was trying to do when, uh, Abraham Lincoln got assassinated, but he just, he was a terrible shot. Oh. Um, <laughs> Too oh, soon. come on, it's not too soon. It's been nearly 200 years. Uh, <laughs> calm down. Oh, oh, Abraham Lincoln's mum might be listening. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> from Delaware. But, um, the, yeah, this whole scene's great. And I, yeah, I agree when he jumps out the thing with that flagpole. But like, I think a thing that I really love about this film, again, is just the, the shocks that I just don't see coming. 
And yeah, I'm so confused, uh, to what side Ilsa's on and everything, like as you said, and it plays it so well. But even just the fact that all of a sudden this car blows up, you think, oh yay, they've saved the Chancellor of Austria, woohoo! And then they get blown to smithereens. I'd really like an Austrian's perspective of this movie. Like, <laughs> oh no, they killed our beloved the leader! Uh, yeah, <laughs> like, you know what? Just... The outrage when the Vatican was stormed in three. Uh, or when chlamydia was spread in two, or when the Kremlin was blown up in four. That's how the Austrians felt when the Chancellor was killed in this. Yes. <laughs> and, of course, in uh, Fallout, the Captain Regent of San Marino. That's probably who Henry Cavill is, uh, the Captain <laughs> Regent of San... What is that, the Captain Regent of San Marino? Um, yeah, but uh, no, it's all great. It's all tense. It's fantastic. And... Um, yeah, this I'm just absolutely enthralled by this movie at this point. It's so intriguing. Like, that's the word I would like. I'm intrigued, but yet we don't even know the plot yet. All we've been told is there's something called the Syndicate. We haven't even been told about the whole connection disasters. That's just something that's, like, been on the wall for Ethan. And we've got this girl that we don't know anything about other than the fact that she's undercover, but she's trying to help him for some reason. The IMF is gone. And you mentioned, like, how long this sequence is. By the time this is over, we're almost an hour into the movie. Like, this is 45, 50 minutes into a two-hour movie. And most of the characters haven't been brought together yet. We just have Benji helping Ethan for the first time. This is the scene that would normally play 15, 20 minutes, like the Vatican scene, 15, 20 minutes in, the Kremlin scene, 15, 20 minutes in. And here we are, almost an hour into the movie before something really happens. It's such a long, drawn-out scene, but, like, the plot isn't even here yet. And I think this is why this movie works so well, because you don't need a story. And by the time you get it's not like Mission Impossible 2. You don't need a story, so we're not going to give you one. With this, it's like we're going to make you wait for the story. We're going to build the suspense. And I think it all works partly because of like just the way that these sequences play out with all the cutting back and forth and just seeing things you haven't seen before. I think that's the biggest difference that they maybe have missed in some of the James Bond movies because – I love the Daniel Craig movies. I'm probably a bigger defender of Quantum of Solace. Like you said, you are with Spectre. I'm a bigger defender of Quantum of Solace than most people are. Uh, it's still not a great movie by any means. But Casino Royale, Skyfall, I love those movies. Having said that, there are very few things in either of those movies that I feel like I've never seen before. And even though we've seen opera scenes, I feel like this is presented in a way we've never seen before. And some of the action scenes that are going to come up it feels like such a unique movie and that's what a spy movie really needs to be you need to not only be in the spy world but you need to be seeing things that feel like i've like this is outside of my world like that's the whole point of a spy is that you don't understand what they do you don't know what they do and this movie just hits on that no matter what it's doing a guy sitting on his computer playing halo somehow still feels like something out of a spy universe well, I disagree. You said that you've not seen anything like that before in James Bond films. Uh, I'd never seen a uh, chess hairless James Bond before, so um, <laughs> and that was just absolutely bullshit. Here, well, here's Daniel Craig coming out in his little speedo. Where's the chest hair? Did Timothy Dalton have chest hair? Timothy Dalton has hair everywhere. He's a man, Colin. He's <laughs> <laughs> the eighties. It was the eighties. <laughs> Everyone had hair. There's three things you know about the 80s. Everyone loved money, everyone had chest hair, and everyone was snorting a lot of cocaine. It was the 80s! <laughs> Timothy Dalton was a thing. Uh... <laughs> Listen, we're not trying to draw any comparisons here, but maybe snorting cocaine put some hair on your chest, okay? <laughs> <laughs> you don't say about eating the crust on your bread, it's between that and snorting coke, alright? 
snort some coke whilst eating some crusty bread and fucking hell. That's how Pierce Brosnan and Sean Connery do it. <laughs> That's why Daniel Craig and Tom Cruise are so hairless. <laughs> They're too clean. They, they, they refuse to snort the cocaine. They get their mums to cut the crust off their bread. Kids these days. <laughs> Let's start giving recommendations. <laughs> Young men trying to grow up in today's day and age. <laughs> <laughs> they just they listen to our podcast like I don't know how to be a real man anymore. Cocaine, there's the answer. <laughs> Cocaine on toast, kids. That's all you need. Cocaine no on crust. toast. Breakfast of champions. <laughs> uh, That's a podcast uh, name. Cocaine on toast, hosted by Ben. <laughs> we got to start doing titles for these episodes. We've got some good material here. <laughs> Uh, okay, so Ilsa goes back to uh, Solomon Lane here. Uh, can I also just say, like, what an iconic villain name that is? Another thing that's like the James Bond movies miss. I, I love Javier Bardem. He, I, I think I ranked him as the. You, you don't have them in front of you, I don't think, but I, I'm pretty sure I ranked him as the number one villain when we did the villains podcast, didn't I? Uh, I, yeah, I think you did, because I think basically it came down to me choosing between him and, uh, yeah. Australian to, to make a number yeah, one. Yeah, that's right. Ago. I think you're right. And, and there's two perfect examples. Our top two villains, modern James Bond movies, we have Alec Trevelyan and Silva. Like, whatever happened to the days of an Ernst Stavro Blofeld, or an Auric Goldfinger, or an Emilio Largo? Like... <laughs> <laughs> or a Doctor No, like the Bone Doctor. Uh, here we have like Solomon Lane. Like We're it just Vargas. sounds Vargas. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, cut away there, Ben. <laughs> but it's it's just such a great name, and just the way he's presented as a villain too. Like there's something so creepy about this guy, and I think that was the main thing I remember um, from Jamie. Uh, you would think seeing a movie like this, she'd be like Tom Cruise, is shirtless, pulling himself up a pipe. But instead, she walked out of this movie saying, like, I love that villain. He was so good. Like, And still, every time I watch this movie, she asked me just today, which Mission Impossible movie are you talking about today? I'm like, oh, Rogue Nation. She goes, remind me again what the story was for that. I'm like, the one with Solomon Lane, the syndicate. She goes, oh, yeah, that guy was so good. It was her yeah, favorite thing about hair. the movie. <laughs> That's not a real man. I, I don't know. I, he looks kind of bare to me. Take your shirt off, Solomon. Oh, look at that chest hair. <laughs> I mean, when you see the clips of him, though, in the new one, a little bit more of a convincing beard than Tom Cruise had. That's all I'll say. <laughs> hey, uh, hey, come on. I think, like, babies born have more of a convincing beard than Tom Cruise. That's all we know is that Sean Harris snorted a lot more cocaine than Tom Cruise. <laughs> that's all we know. <laughs> Tom Cruise was too innocent in the 80s, all right? He was flying planes. He was making cocktails. He was um, <laughs> being risky with his business. Uh, I mean, <laughs> Just take those old records off the shelf. Sorry. <laughs> I would totally be up for it. Like, the, I know we say this in joking all the time, but we're we're probably two of the big Tom Cruise defenders out there no matter what. Like, a Tom Cruise month sounds like a lot of fun to me. Good and bad movies. Like, let's do Night and Day. Let's do Cocktail. Like, that would be a blast. Hey, Cocktail's got a great Australian actor in Brian Brown in it, so I'd be down oh, for that. Oh, I love Brian Brown. Um, Brian Brown is amazing. Such a great actor. There was something else he did. Uh, name something else. There was something I, I actually knew him. <laughs> Not Australia. Stop trying Sorry, to make Australia a thing. 
Oh, he's been. I, the thing is, I think he's an actor who I didn't realize had done as many American movies as I thought he had. Like, mm-hmm. and then you kind of look at his filmography, and he's he's done quite a lot. So, um, oh, the one with Heath Ledger, Two Hands. I know what I know him from though. FX. It's a movie about like a cop paired up with a special effects guy. I remember loving that movie when I was a kid. Right. No, I can't say I've seen it, but uh, Brian Brown, great guy. He was in. Um, I think I've talked before about that. Remake that Australian make that remake they did of uh, the book on the beach, which essentially is about nuclear fallout taking over the world, and then Australia's like the last safe place in the world to live. And it's one of these rare end of the world movies where there's no happy ending, everyone dies. Spoiler alert: Grant Bowles in it, uh, so that's why it's it's so great. But um, yeah, God, that movie is just it's tragically sad. And uh, yeah, Brian Brown's in that. He crashes a Ferrari in it and destroys it, which makes me cry. But um, so does the whole movie because it's sad. And that's all sick. Cocktail, great soundtrack. Yes, yes. I, I, I've honestly never seen Cocktail. I've only heard bad things about it. But from what I've liked of the soundtrack and just kind of the clips I've seen, I'm like, hey, that kind of looks entertaining. It, it is. Like, I think I saw it one time on TV when I was a teenager. I don't know if I've ever seen it since then. And I think this around the time of, like, Mission Impossible 1 and 2. So And Jerry Maguire as well. So, I mean, like, I was all into anything with Tom Cruise. But I remember watching it kind of expecting this terrible movie. And then I'm like, wow, this is kind of fun. I mean, just the whole idea of juggling the bottles and putting on a show and stuff like that. It's like, have you ever been to the itchy band restaurant where they, they, they cook the food at the table, but they'll be like tossing the bottles up in the air and flipping the vegetables. No, in Australia, we like to cook our food in the kitchen. So I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Just this might be a Canadian thing. thing. We'll, uh, <laughs> we'll find, we'll find one of these restaurants for you. You'll take me uh, to one when I'm in Winnipeg. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that build a pizza place. I told Mallory about that and she just she's like, I want to go to that build a pizza place that you talked about in Winnipeg. Oh, and you know what? We got three of them here now, like three separate oh. ones. And the one we you went to is not even night. the best one. Like the other two oh. were even better. We're, we're making well, hey, a pizza and going to the Humanity Museum again. Yeah. Museum <laughs> for Human Rights. That'll put some hair on your chest. And the mint. <laughs> the Royal Canadian Mint. <laughs> <laughs> Winnipeg's greatest hits. That's hosted by Ryan Philippi. <laughs> Welcome to the Royal Canadian Mint. I'm Ryan Philippi. Um, here is a toonie. <laughs> so this next group of scenes here is mostly just the plot set up, but there's still some good stuff. We have to kind of hold off on one scene um, to talk about it on its own because it's, I think, the big heist scene of the movie. Um. So when Ilsa meets Lane here, uh, you talked about how you're not cramming her down your throat. And I think, I don't know if people would interpret this with, this way, but I feel like in this day and age when James Gunn gets fired from <laughs> the Galaxy Volume 3, that, um, uh, you know, people will take anything the wrong way. We're like, we're always talking about how, oh, I don't like how they force this, you know, character down your throat is like the strong female. We have no problem with this. I mean, I already said multiple times throughout this whole month we've been covering this, or month and, and a little bit, how Alias is like one of my favorite shows of all time, and probably one of the best portrayals ever of a female character on TV. It's just it needs to be done right, and it, whether it's a female character or a male character, it needs to be done right both ways. And I complain about Chris Pratt in Jurassic World the exact same way that I complain about Halle Berry and so many of these other female action heroes that they've just handled the complete wrong way. Even the way Ilsa comes in here and that guy tries to attack her and she basically like 
jumps up. I don't know how she does it. She jumps up. She like wraps his, her legs around his head and like does this takedown. It's just it, it's it's a great visual. And I don't think you would ever look at her thinking like, well, she's going to win in a fight. Uh, and that's kind of the appeal. I think there's so many parallels with her character and Ethan's character that are going to come out later on. That it's important that she doesn't look like this great presence. Kind of like what I said, when she got cast, I'm like, she looks kind of boring. Like, why is, you know, why is she in a Mission Impossible movie? Uh, but like the scene with Lynn here, like such a creepy villain. And the, the way that she just sort of holds her own with him, you're starting to understand her character little bits like this because we're not even 100% sure who she is but you get that like this covers important to her for some reason and yet believe it or not it's not even like with Ethan where he's like we need to stop Lane she's like I just want my life back I'm kind of tired of this you know whole cover business but she does the whole thing it's like just kill me yourself and then he just pulls the trigger and she kind of flinches and then realizes it's not her like I just I, it's such a really creepy scene between the villain and her um, and this whole thing is setting up that she's playing both sides. This is the movie where everybody's playing everybody. And there's a great moment that's going to come up near the end where they, they actually come right out and say that. But Ilsa's in on that too. It's not just Ethan and Lane playing each other. Because one of the things she tells him here is she's finding a way to save herself. And she says, he knows about Morocco. But it's only in the next scene when Ethan and Benji are talking on his little you know houseboat uh, which is the equivalent of the train car scene in Ghost Protocol, when they're like, ah, uh, there's this thing in Morocco. And they're like, Morocco, really? But she said it beforehand. So she already, she gave him this lipstick USB drive. And before it's even revealed to the audience that Ethan knows about this, she's saying, oh, he knows about Morocco. He's going to be there. So she's playing Lane just as much as Lane's playing everybody else. Uh, and then the scene with uh, Benji, too. I mean, obviously we get the, the I'm your friend, like you said, <laughs> Uh, thing here and uh, I'm not going to leave you Ethan and he's like okay then alright good let's move on uh, his reaction okay then yeah. okay <laughs> uh, but as they go through the plans they find out what the secure facility in Morocco they don't know anything other than that and they're off to Casablanca um, there's a quick scene where they get introduced to Ilsa here and uh, you know, also cutting a lot of stuff with cutting back and forth in this movie. It's it's a quick way of telling storytelling. Like you said, a movie like this, it actually is longer, probably has less action than most Mission Impossible movies short of the first. It doesn't feel like it drags at any point. That's because we have two scenes playing at the same time here again. We have Ethan meeting Ilsa and she comes up after holding her breath underwater. She's got that cool little wrist device on that shows a minute 57 seconds. Um... Uh, of course, she also had the lipstick uh, on the the door, so he kind of knew this is where he's supposed to come. And then you've got the scenes with Brant finally getting in touch with Luther. So Luther's finally back in this movie here, but he doesn't want to have anything to do with Brant, which is weird because Brant clearly is his boss, as we saw in the opening scene, and he even says, I don't know you, man. Sorry, I got to do my movie. I don't know you, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I just always remember, my only go-to Luther line is a welcome back, brother, from 3S. <laughs> Any impression, that's always in a brother with finger hands. <laughs> but I actually, I, I think this is one of the things I came around to. I mentioned with um, Mission Impossible 3 that I was not a big fan of Julia's character when I first saw it. I came around on her. Same thing with Philip Seymour Hoffman. I, I liked him, but I didn't love him. I came around on him. I'll say the same thing with Ving Rhames here, because when I first saw this, I was so disappointed with the Luther we got, because... They didn't quite know how to juggle him and Benji essentially having the same purpose in this franchise now. But I like 
just that confidence he has, it goes all the way back to the first movie where, you know, he's, uh, Ethan's trying to sell him on, you know, going into the Black Vault and Langley. And he's like, you're the guy that did this. You're the guy that did this. And even when Brant's eventually saying to him here, you know, uh, oh, we need to find me. He goes, what you're asking me to do, I could have done this at home. <laughs> he's like, you didn't even have to have me get out of bed. And then they have that thing where it's like, oh, these are who he's looking for. This girl and then this guy or whatever. And says, what's the difference of the pictures? He trusts them. That's the scene I was talking about earlier. I like that he could pick that up. But he goes, I don't know. We're in for the long haul here, Luther. You want me to order some some takeout? And Luther's like, got it. <laughs> Just like a split second later. <laughs> I think for the first time since the first movie, they get that Luther, he's like the superhero of computers. And now that I watch this movie more, I see that even though him and Benji, they sort of had the same role in the last movie, Benji's moved on to something different here, and he is more of a field agent. And Luther is that techie guy, which uh, so so I, I'm more sold on Luther in here. Although it is kind of shocking how late in the movie he comes back in. Um, anyway, like, okay, so as they're starting to prep the mission here, as Ilsa is talking about what this facility is, you know, it's it's crazy security, like crazier security than Langley, crazier security than the the uh, Shanghai building in Mission Impossible Three. This is the one where that line for Mission Impossible Three would have worked. The Langley was a cakewalk compared to this because they got the retina scans, they got keys, they got codes, they got fingerprint scans, and then they have this insane thing where it can read your physical movements, a computer that can track you're not walking like this person is supposed to walk. You're not breathing the way this person breathes. You blinked differently. Like the most insane artificial intelligence recognition software there is. And the whole time Benji's like, all right, this will be simple. We just do this. And of course it goes back to ghost protocol, the same thing. And I get to wear a mask. He's always excited to wear his mask. (laughs) And I'm just waiting for the movie where he finally gets to wear one because we have this thing where you're seeing as they're planning, this is what we'll do. And Benji's putting on the mask and all of a sudden he gets arrested. And that was a shot from the trailer that really threw me off where you see them rip off a mask off Benji and you expect to see that in the movie. It's like, no, that's just the imaginary, you know, Benji with the mask scene. Um, but all this leads up to the whole thing about, no, this Taurus, this, this underwater facility, this server that's underwater, this is the only way to do it because you have to get the profile for him to get this. At this point in the movie, I don't even care, nor do I, I mean, am I even 100% sure I can explain exactly what it is they need. There's some drive that Lane is after that's really important in the syndicate, and it's really difficult to get in there. But the main thing is we got to go underwater, and you're going to have to hold your breath for two minutes. And Benji's like, oh, Ethan can do that in his sleep. And then Ethan's like, shut up, Benji, I can't. And then it's like, well, yeah, but then there's the other thing. You're going to have to, you know, do the work in there. You're, you're going to have to find the thing. Okay, three minutes tops. Ethan could do that in his sleep. And he's like, shut up. <laughs> it's like the bigger problem is the more you exert yourself, the more oxygen you're going to use. It's like no problem for Ethan. <laughs> uh, I think Simon Pig's the only guy that could do this subtle type of humor and actually sell it well. Um, but the whole buildup here is just for that Taurus scene that's going to come up, which is the one that really needs to be talked about on its own because I think that's the the big high scene of this movie. But, I mean, these these aren't like – this is just exposition. This is just building the story. But I think all the character stuff is still here. And I just love the dynamic they get. It's now an hour into this movie, and for the first time ever, are we actually starting to put a team together? We don't even have the full team yet. But even just this dynamic of Ethan, Ilsa, and Benji – in one scene, just clicks so much more. I love the team in Ghost Protocol, but I feel like 
in one scene, these three click better than the entire team in Ghost Protocol did last time. I agree. I think kind of all the setups, that's great. I love the, the villainy scene, um, you know, where Nils is, uh, nearly getting shot by Solomon. I, I, Solomon Lane just really sounds like, you know, a place I visited the other night in Brisbane. You know, I just, yeah, I just ducked down Solomon Lane, found a shop. Um, that joke failed. Never mind. Um, but so he <laughs> shoots random guy, which is kind of, you know, funny, but, um, yeah, all the stuff like I the Benji bit when he's like, "I'm your friend," and that's all we're gonna say about that. But um, this whole setup thing for Morocco is pretty cool. Just you know, it's again the the whole impossible mission sort of setup. And can we just establish that this random security uh, facility in Morocco has better security than the Kremlin and the CIA? So like, why doesn't CIA and the Kremlin have this weird body walking? thing that enables you to see how people walk which i mean i wonder if that's a thing um my thing with the plot holes here is why does this need to be done at the same time as benji's walking in couldn't they go underwater and do this switcheroo before benji goes in it seems like they're putting all their eggs into one basket which really could be delayed until they've actually swapped this over there doesn't really seem to be an explanation as to, hey, we have to do this at the same time. Um, so that's my thing here. It's kind of like, that makes no sense because, you know, as we see Alec Baldwin talking about earlier in the movie, a lot of their missions are just down to dumb luck, which really they are. Um, so, yeah, but apparently I'm just reading here, this whole sequence of Tom Cruise Underwater was done in one shot. He was trained to hold his breath for three minutes. Um, so that's pretty incredible that they kind of went that far to do it. Um, but like, there's no real, like, do they, does nobody ever check these for anything? Cause like he doesn't exactly screw the thing back on after he takes it off. And again, blind luck, he's got a 50, 50 chance of putting the wrong thing in there. Um, and then kind of the way they get there and they're like, Oh, if you got three minutes and you're dead, like, why is this never a backup plan that Ilsa can save him? Like she does. So Yeah. Just a few little nitpicks, but it's all incredible. Like, it's all, it's a very unique way of, I guess, going about it just to steal this thing, whatever it is that the syndicate wants. But, um, yeah. And have I gone dead? I muted myself. Oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what's funny is I think I was responding to several things you said in there. And one was like, oh, good! You were laughing at my hilarious me? jokes. <laughs> Which, no, there wasn't. The the joke that you made, I legitimately started laughing. It just it took me about ten seconds afterwards. I'm like, wait, now I get it. And you heard none of that. <laughs> I didn't hear anything. Like it was just dead silence. <laughs> I wanted to make you feel as awkward as I possibly could. <laughs> you were you were acting exactly like our audience. Like, oh, yeah, Ben exactly. said something. Let's be silent. <laughs> Um, <laughs> no, like the, the one thing I really agree with is the whole dumb luck thing, because that is true in all these movies. There's a lot of dumb luck that comes in. I feel like this movie is the most calculated where it, it, it really is about them actually putting a plan together where this was the only way to do it. I mean, that's a lot of what the movie becomes later on. It was always going to end up here. This is the way it was always going to be. This is the way we always saw it ending. 
But yet this scene coming up, that's a perfect example of how there is dumb luck that plays into it. And you can make that argument with like the Kremlin thing, with everything else, because this is an agency that doesn't report what they do. So how are they to know that any of this stuff actually happens? How do they know that there's not an agent like Ethan Hunt that's out there well, just making these things up? Yeah. It's, and it's very similar to, I guess, in Skyfall, isn't it? When, um, Silver has that whole plan with the train and, you know, the subway and, um, mm-hmm. uh, what's her name? Duh. Um, you know, like, I mean, it's, it's all, it's all well and good to say, like, oh, I planned this all along. It's kind of like, dude, you did not plan all of that along. Yeah. Like, you had to, like, there is no way you can calculate that to the exact moment that, that is going to happen. So, like, yeah, but I mean, what if, if, if this is, had, like, Bond had terrible diarrhea that struck him at that moment. <laughs> He's going to make the choice. Ooh, do I jump in that hole? I really got to go. What if I Bond twisted I... his ankle? <laughs> like... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so his mum. Like, half a mum? You're alive? Like... What if dull lady wasn't on shift that day and the other <laughs> train operator just didn't open the door? Open the door. Dude. And they're just like, no! <laughs> yeah. I'm not open allowed. The door. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I will lose my license. Get off the train, sir. <laughs> it's still yes. fun, though. Yes. <laughs> Ryan Felipe. Um, ah. <laughs> Anyways. Um, yeah, oh, there was one other funny line here, which I missed, where uh, Benji's talking about uh, how the plan's not going to work. Or Ilsa says, that's why the plan's not going to work. And he says, right, you know, that happens. I end up in a Moroccan jail playing mummies and daddies with Omar the Strangler. <laughs> it's, just, it's a really weird line, but. <laughs> well, if I know anything about Morocco, that's generally yeah. what happens. <laughs> Omar the Strangler. <laughs> the Omar the Strangler, the motion picture coming soon, starring Ryan Felipe. <laughs> <laughs> that's what they call their dancing with the stars in Morocco. Omar the Strangler? Yes. <laughs> Sorry, this is the moment I should have muted myself. <laughs> That's the moment where I go back in and edit like a massive canned laughter afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyways, the whole Taurus scene here, this is the big heist. This is the equivalent of the Vatican scene, which is weird. The more I pay attention to this movie, realizing how different it is from from all the other Mission Impossible movies, while at the same time being the most Mission Impossible-like because it references the ones that come before it, we're used to the whole team getting together and doing something. It seemed like that's what the opera scene was going to be. We have this mission, everybody has the role. It really didn't end up being that. It was just Benji dumb luck when he was there, you know? Um, this scene, again, it's it's three people, and one guy is doing almost all the work here. But it, it, it's not the same as the Vatican scene. It's not the same as the Kremlin. It's 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 totally different. But yet I love it. Uh, and talk about stunt, like you said, you know, because that was what I was going to mention is that the, I don't think he held it for a two full straight two minutes. I think they broke this up into two separate shots. Uh, and there are cuts here and there, but they legitimately wanted him to be underwater. It was about maximizing filming as much as they can. This is where I wondered if it's an instance where they said. This is only going to look like... We talked about the knife shot in Mission Impossible 2, where John Woo really wanted to use a real knife. You know, Obviously, there's, there's a cable that prevented him from actually stabbing him in the eye, but it was meant to stop like a centimeter above Tom Cruise's eye. And John Woo said, I really want to be a real knife, but I don't want to do that to Tom Cruise. And Tom Cruise is like, well, it's going to look better with a real knife. Like, Would this scene look any different if they did it on blue screen? Like, I don't think it would. 
there are probably ways to do this even if, if it wasn't one even if it was one shot there's ways to do this and not have it be filmed in one shot but it this it is what look it, it almost still like sorry to interrupt but it, it kind of no point am I watching this assuming that it's not special effects like I'm I, not saying it looks like some special, in there yeah like yeah, the arm but, is special effects yeah but I mean like I guess it's done in a way that you assume like as you say like they're cutting here and there and like he's just got like I think at one point I was kind of thinking like oh, okay the way they've angled that camera clearly there's like an air pocket just behind there that you know he's going to go up there and do it so I, I kind of wish I had a known pre-watching this scene that it was all done in that way because I think that would have made it more spectacular uh, it's kind of like yeah. the you know the plane bit like you know you don't need to see any previews or read anything for it to assume that Tom Cruise is really dangling from a plane there right mm-hmm. now as it takes up. Well, and I think that's that's why it was more interesting to me because, as you're saying, you know, this didn't need to be... It looks like a special effects at times. I don't think it adds anything to that, but what it adds to is knowing that it's real stunts. And this was another thing that they made sure to publicize. Like, this scene, he was really underwater for... I don't know, a minute and a half or something in some shots. And you also have to understand, it's just like they say. I mean, when we see that shot of Ilsa in the pool, you know, she's sitting underwater in one still position and she lasts two minutes. That's probably what, like, a really well-conditioned athlete could do. And they bring up the the very logical point. If you're exerting yourself in any way, you're not going to last as long. And I think some of the stuff he's doing down there, that's what makes it more impressive. He may only be doing a one-minute shot or a one-minute, 10-second shot here, but he's swinging all over the place, and he's actually doing the swimming, and he's grabbing things, and he's you know, ducking and doing flips and stuff like that. And would the scene have looked any different if they filmed it a different way? No, but knowing that he did that for real, it kind of makes you appreciate it in a different way when you are watching it, which is what you missed. You know, I knew mm. it going in. A lot of people, when the movie first came out, knew it going in. If you don't know, I don't think it makes a difference. But this is why I think these movies are really started to hit is because people know the stunts are real. They kind of caught on with Tom Cruise throughout like two and three to know how many stunts he was doing. And by the time Ghost Protocol came out, there was so much publicity. I don't think it was intentional about him doing the climbing scenes that people were just drawn to. I want to see a person do something crazy for real. And anybody, any stuntman can do these things. But to see the most famous actor in the world do it. Like, if we actually saw Tom Hanks go into space, you know, they do the vomit comment and everything, but if you said Apollo 13, they actually shot Tom Hanks into space, it's not going to look any didn't? different on film. No, <laughs> sorry to say. Kevin oh, Bacon man. did. Kevin oh. Bacon did, but not Tom Hanks. I always <laughs> but, thought, like, Kevin Bacon was an astronaut, but now you just ruined it for me. I mean, he's an astronaut, among other things. Well, look, among everything. Look, he is in another stratosphere to other human beings. And you know what? So. He's a real man, but, you know, Ben, not a lot of chest hair. Well, look, it doesn't do matter because he's Kevin Bacon. He's, he's allowed to get away with it. He's the only, <laughs> he's the only exception. It's Kevin Bacon. Yeah. And Brendan Fraser. There's an exception. Well, There's a man. Yeah, and Tobey Maguire. There's a, there's a trio. No, you lost me. Sorry. <laughs> oh, what? You, what are you saying? Tobey Maguire needs to have chest hair? I'm saying I don't know if I would classify him as the epitome of masculinity. <laughs> That's the well, this is because the guy hasn't hit puberty yet, all right? He's like in his 40s. He'll hit it one day. <laughs> Leave Tobey Maguire alone. You'll get there. (laughs) You can do it, Toby. You can do it. (laughs) But, like, I think just knowing that these scenes are real stunts, there's something that people want to see this. They they want to to be able to 
sit in the theater and be like, did you talk to the person next to him? Did you know that he actually held his breath there? No, you don't say. No, I appreciate the scene so much more. Stop talking in the movie. But the reason I say that is because this has become a way of publicity for these movies. And I don't think the Fallout has any one stunt they've talked about, kind of like, you know, this or the plane stunt. Um, The what? The one where Tom Cruise has broken his leg. I think that got a bit of publicity. Yeah. And that's just him jumping from a roof to a roof. (laughs) Yeah. But one thing I am noticing is that every time we see another movie in theater, they always have a Mission Impossible, kind of a combination of trailer and promotion thing. And one of the things they're promoting it with is the stunts are real. And we're seeing little commercials that are like behind the scenes making ofs before other movies. Like we went to go see Equalizer 2 today. And as soon as we walk in the theater, they're playing a little clip of Fallout and it's showing Mission Impossible. It's saying real stunts. The stunts are real and all these things. They've now gotten to the point where this is how you get a buzz on the movie. So whether you have to have Tom Cruise do it for real or not, it's getting people in the door. And it does make a difference if you know it. Because I don't think this this swimming scene is nearly as impressive otherwise. Although it is a great scene, and I love the music in it. Like One of the things I want to mention about the score for this movie, like uh, Joe Kramer, who did the, the, the music, not nearly the, the caliber, you would say, of Michael Giacchino, or Hans Zimmer, or Danny Elfman, the guys who did it previously. He was just the guy that uh, Chris McQuarrie worked on for his two movies, you know, Jack Reacher and Way of the Gun. And I remember being disappointed just because of how much I loved the uh, Mission Impossible 3 and Ghost Protocol scores, I mean, especially Ghost Protocol. But, like, I can't say I'm in any way disappointed. It's a completely different score, but the suspense music is what builds so well, especially going into this scene here. Um, the whole underwater scene is spectacular too. I mean, whether the special effects in it or not, whether he actually did go underwater or not, it's such a great scene because you would never expect, this is where you've seen something different in a movie. You may see Bond do a scene like this, but it would be a 30 second scene here. They're like, we're going to make it seven minutes and you're going to see a man choking to death because he has no oxygen and just a little gadget that, Oh god. It's intriguing stuff. It's making me yawn. <laughs> oh, I love this film. Oh, it's great. But it's uh I I mean, especially when he runs out of oxygen and you just see Ilsa coming in there out of nowhere and she just starts I look at the visual of her riding him like a horse, basically. <laughs> <laughs> um but you also mentioned the two cards he has. Which one am I going to put in? And it's it's not drawn out so much that it's cliched. It's just, uh, I don't know which one it is. Okay, let me pop in this one. And then that's it. That gets Benji out. Uh, so this scene's probably, I think, the most exciting scene of the movie. But the one that comes after this, the car chase slash bike chase. I mean, this is the visual spectacle of the movie. Um, also, the fact that when Tom Cruise chokes to death, they come out of there. And Ilsa's defibrillating him. Benji has another one of these moments that says, whew, I don't know how I did it, but that was really tough, but I got it all done. It's just like the Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol scene, and then all of a sudden he's like, is Ethan dead? <laughs> he's lying there, being shocked back to life. But I don't remember if it was Christopher McQuarrie or Tom Cruise who said that they read stories about what happened to people who actually did suffocate, and they wanted to incorporate that in the movie. And another little detail, like you've seen people who had to be brought back to life or who... Uh, you know, they, they pass out for being under water too long. This movie shows you what it actually, the symptoms actually are afterwards. 
So him being loopy when and he's like Benji and he's just smiling the whole time and Benji's like it's okay it's okay and you like you can just look at him and be like this guy doesn't know where he is right now you know Ilsa obviously betrays them again another thing like messing with your mind is she good is she bad uh, the whole thing just becomes a chase for Ilsa which I don't know <laughs> they obviously don't want this to get to Lane but Benji at some point could be like it's okay I've got another disc <laughs> <laughs> that would have been my first word uh, the the car chase scene, though, is so good because, again, they did these stunts for real. A lot of the ones, especially the ones where you're actually seeing Tom Cruise behind the wheel, he's doing it driving down a staircase. Uh, and I just love Benji bouncing up and down. Stairs, 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 stairs. Like, this is Simon Pegg at his best in this scene here. Uh, when, you know, he's like, do you have your seatbelt on? He's like, you're asking me that now? And then he's just screaming in the air. That's my profile pic. They're, like, oh, they're flying off the stairs. Uh, you got Brant and uh, Luther coming back in again. And another little moment that they, they brought in with the, or two moments they brought in with the whole um, uh, oxygen-deprived symptoms here, when he runs to try to jump over the car and his body just goes limp and he flops. And it's like, are you okay? You were dead just a few minutes ago. So like, what are you talking about? As if he doesn't even remember that. And then when they pull up and they, they're chasing Ilsa, or they're, they're being chased, they're chasing and they actually just come to a stop, and there's Brent and Luther's vehicle. Right after, they're like, well, there's no way we're going to find them in a city this big. And all Ethan does is just, like, he sees them looking at him, and he just sort of waves, like, hey, how's it going? But, like, you can see by the look on his face, it's not him being funny. Hey, guys. It's him actually being like, these guys are looking at me like they know me. Okay, just wave and drive off. <laughs> the rest of the car chase is so good, though. That shot where they just fly through the air, and then the car flips a million times. I, that's, oh, it's visually you're seeing some things that you wouldn't normally see. I, I mean, we look at the car flipping Casino Royale. They basically said, we're going to do that, but I keep yelling, I'm sorry. Oh, my goodness. This is the best part of the I'm movie. I'm so fucking bored of Mission Impossible. <laughs> is it right, Philippine uh, But now they're going to do <laughs> the Casino Royale car flip, but they're going to do it end on end. And again, just little surprises like the um, uh, the, the guy coming off his bike towards the window as they're stuck in the vehicle and then all of a sudden Brant just crashes into it. Plus the little argument that Luther and Brant have, like Luther and Brant could have their fun little spin-off too. It's like, you just had to get the 4x4. Four four. I wanted this. It's like, come on, let's just go. It's like, no, you just had to have it. <laughs> their little bickering's great. Um, and I guess the bike chase we'll just quickly talk about as well. Uh, I don't know how much of this was real, how much wasn't, but there are shots where you could tell that that is real. And there are shots you can tell that is really Tom Cruise doing it. Obviously, some of them, it's going to be blue screen. It's going to be some CGI. But for the most part, I think a lot of the stunt driving we're seeing is real. Whether they speed it up a little bit, I'm guessing they're going about 180 kilometers an hour. Some of it's sped up. But this is the action scene of the movie. And again, it's funny because it's a lot shorter than one. It's, it's shorter than the opera scene. It's shorter than the tourist scene. But I, I love it, and, and this is kind of where the movie will climax as far as action goes, and this is why I think the third act of the movie that's coming up is so interesting, because they didn't take the James Bond route of, let's save a massive climax, or even the Mission Impossible route of, let's save a massive climax for the end. This is the last of the action scenes, when Ilsa steps out, and he fl- falls off the bike. That's the last real stunt of this movie, and there's still about you know half hour, 40 minutes left. But these two scenes here, I mean, this makes up a huge chunk of the movie and it's all action. But then it's just weird because action from this point on is going to be used very sparingly. 
I mean, this whole, I think, just going back to the very beginning of this episode where I said my enjoyment of this film, like, a lot of it just comes into the suspense of it. Like, you know, the the opera scene was just so great, edge of your seat stuff, and then even this underwater stuff, like, kind of just the, the whole section where he's, like, out of breath, like, holy fuck, how the hell is he going to get out of this? Um, to, yeah, just this car chase sequence is great. I mean, it's just, it's so well shot, and just with the bikes and just the the humour thrown into it as well. I mean, it, it really is fantastic. And... I mean, visually, just like when the car's flipping and you kind of got that shot of, um, you know, Ethan and Benji, just kind of the way they're rocketing back and forth looks fantastic. And, um, just, yeah, the, the bit, um, when like the car's upside down and Hawkeye's just like, what is he like? You know, <laughs> how you doing? He's like, yeah, good. Hanging upside down. Um, and then you're like, it's funny, like the motorbike, the motorbike chase sequence, like a bit of a weird sort of recollection of Mission Impossible 2, but done so much better. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, well, I, mean, I, I was going to ask that though, because I mean, I love this sequence. I don't think I'll take anything away from this, but I, I think arguably the the bike chase in Mission Impossible 2 was a little more spectacular. Well, I, I guess this was lacking William Mayposer, so yeah, you're right. Um, exactly. Um, but still it's like it's it's shot amazingly and i mean i don't really have a lot to add it's it's interesting you say about the whole um the fact that this is the last stunt i didn't really even kind of think about that so yeah that's kind of fascinating to think that really that um you know that's moving forward but uh, yeah no this is all fantastic it looks great it's tense uh i love the bit kind of when he's like flipping the car around and smashing everyone up like it yeah it's fantastic and after this, we get the debrief scene, which is the same as Ghost Protocol, uh, where they realize everybody screwed up so bad. And uh, obviously, uh, at the same time, we have we find out what Ilsa is actually up to, um, where she's meeting with her boss, Atlee, who I think this is, I don't know if this is the first time he's introduced in the movie. It's a character that kind of just creeps up on you, too. Um, but I, li- I like especially the scene with Luther and Benji and Ethan and Brant, because even though I think there's a lot less of uh, Jeremy Renner in this movie, I feel like they kept his character true, because the one thing with changing directors from one to the next that you often get is the characters that feel the same. I don't think in any way Ethan Hunt from Mission Impossible 1 feels like the same character in Mission Impossible 2. I don't think the Ethan Hunt we get in Mission Impossible 3 feels anything like Ethan Hunt we get in, in Mission Impossible 4. Here, Christopher McQuarrie started to make characters consistent. And Brand's the best example because I kind of walk away from the last one feeling like, well, this is a guy who's going to go back out in the field. But no, I mean, logically, he is going to still be scarred by what happened. And he's spent... He said that that that, uh, assignment where Julia supposedly died in uh, Ghost Protocol we talked about, that that was his first real field mission... And she lost him. Then he spent like a decade sitting behind a desk. So it would make sense that he's still a desk guy. But it's the arguments he has where he's more of the politician than Ethan is. And when they're talking about what they're going to do here, you know, obviously Benji made the copy, which is kind of a funny moment where he's like, please tell me you made a copy. He's like, of course I made a copy. I'm like, all right, we're all good. But then Brant just having the different ideals from Ethan. This becomes the whole setup for the finale of the movie and for a character that really had no significance up until now, this was just, it was exactly the same as, you remember that scene in Ghost Protocol, when he's, he has the, the briefcase with the, the codes in it, and he's dangling out the window, and the tallest building in the world is like, I'll drop this because you can't let this get into Hendrix's hands. And 
it's just those two arguing about we have the same mission. We just we're, we have different ways that we think about getting there. Brant thinks that Ethan's taking too many risks. Ethan thinks that Brant's doing things by the book too much and doesn't realize risks have to be taken. They have the same thing here. And also just that hilarious moment that Brant has about, you know, uh, oh, we did this, we did this, we screwed up, we lost this. I am so proud of us. <laughs> this monotone voice. And then the whole idea here becomes Lane wants to take the prime minister because what this thing is, Luther, I can't even open this. This is a red box or whatever. Uh, and the only person who can open this would be the prime minister of England. Oh, Lane's going to take the prime minister. And Ethan's like, great, let's take him first. And this is what the whole setup <laughs> of the argument is. And that is a total Ethan Hunt thing too. Like you go back to, it's not that this is a connection, but you go back to Mission Impossible 2 when Doug Ray Scott's character is analyzing, you, you kind of make fun of it. You know, oh, this is what Ethan's going to do, and I know him so well, and he would do this, and I would do this, but he's going to do something crazy and death-defying instead of harming anybody. This is basically what it comes down to with Ethan. He's like, yeah, let's do the craziest thing in the world. Let's kidnap the Prime Minister of England. Uh, And also, when you mentioned in the last episode, you're like, where do they go from here? They have the Vatican. They have the Kremlin. They go to the White House. like, well, not the White House, but it's pretty close if you think about it. So you kind of you're on track there. The British um, House, the British House, yeah, number ten Downing Street. If this was like Buckingham Palace and it was the Queen here, then they really would have surpassed James Bond. The Queen would love like, that's it. What we, oh, the the Queen like, would be like oh blood, bloody time, some excitement going on, and say, "There's a bored. real man, <laughs> Chester or not, a real man." Why is well, already, Scottish thing? I don't know what that was. He's a real <laughs> man, I tell you. <laughs> the Queen secretly Scottish. That was Tom Cruise trying to do his accent in Far and Away again. Sorry about that. <laughs> we, we've already seen the Queen hang out with James Bond at the Olympics, so, you know. But if if she could do it in a movie, like, if it was Spectre that, that scene was in, then, then Bond would have made it. But no, Ethan Hunt's got one up on her. Well, almost. This is just the PM here. Uh, <laughs> they're no Chancellor of Austria. Yes, yeah, not the <laughs> Chancellor of wherever. <laughs> um, the scene with Ilsa and Atlee, like Atlee's such a quirky character. I think that's one of the things that really fits in this movie because we're coming off of these reality-based movies. Like Ghost Protocol had that kind of cartoony feel, as I mentioned, but it was a real-world movie. And this, as I said, all takes place in the spy world. And you have a character like Atlee, which is Ilsa's handler. Quiet, Casper, go to bed. <laughs> 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 no editing on Father the Oz of the year, Colin Hildy. <laughs> uh, but he's like he's just got this weird quirkiness about him that I really like. Uh and again, Ilsa right here, this is what I was talking about earlier where she just wants to come she doesn't want to be out in, on, undercover anymore. It's like you promise you bring me in. It's like, "No, I need you in Lane's organization. Go back. Make sure you're in his trust again. He's not going to trust you much after you did this." <laughs> like he's totally setting her up and you find out why later on, but uh this is where I start getting the parallels between her character and Ethan's character because she is where Ethan was in between Mission Impossible 3 and Mission Impossible 4. She sacrificed everything for the sake of a mission. She's put herself in enemy hands. Ethan, in the case of uh, or uh, Ghost Protocol, put him in a Russian prison you know, for uh, this, this execution or whatever, an unsanctioned hit. And... With her, she's gone undercover in the syndicate. They both were doing it just for the sake of the mission. Uh, and they both just wanted to come back. 
and there's a lot of parallels between the characters. And that's why I think their relationship works in this because at no point do they make this a love story. And I kept expecting them to make a love story out of it. And I think even on second, third, fourth viewings, maybe even this time, there are moments where you feel like that's where they're going with these two characters. We mentioned like a couple of weird moments they had with him and, uh, and Carter in the last one. But even more so in this, it feels like this is going to be his true love. You know, he can never be with Julia because she'd be in danger. But this woman can defend herself. Uh, but they never go there because the movie's actually about them being the same person. And that's why the scene that's coming up later on where she says, yeah, you can come away with me. It's weird the way they play it, like you mentioned about the whole flirting thing. I'll just jump, I'll jump all over the place here, but I get all my thoughts out about Ilsa now. Um, she's by far the most interesting character in this whole movie. And I think arguably her and Lane give the two best performances of this movie too. And I'm a big fan of what Tom Cruise does as this character. I even said Ghost Protocol the one where he says the least is his best performance in this franchise. Uh, but these two steal the movie. And one of the reasons this works so well is, as we mentioned, her not being so obvious and in your face. I'm a strong female character. They just played her the same as they would Ethan. And like they're complete mm-hmm. parallels of each other, even how the stories go. But it's done so suddenly that it's not it's not obvious. They're not telegraphing. This is where they're going with these characters. Um you know, coming up the whole thing with uh, the kidnapping the prime minister. I mean, Ethan's still going to extremes, and he's still you, you look at it, he's still sacrificing himself for the mission. This is what four out of the five movies that he's been rogue from his organization. He's been on the run for six months. I mean, this guy's lost as much as she has, all for the sake of bringing down the syndicate. Uh, it's just really interesting how these two characters work together. Um, so. They end up having a meetup that comes up here. Now, now the main thing with Ilsa is that when she meets up with Lane, the disc's been erased. Atley obviously erased this, uh, as we're going to find out later on. But when he shows up, uh, or they're, when they're examining the disc, it's like, well, it's empty. Now, all of a sudden, her life's in danger. We get the, I don't know if it's a train station meeting that they have in the terminal. And I love when Ethan arrives, and she just looks around. It's like, there's Benji. He waves. There's Luther. He waves. There's Bran. He waves. And this is the same thing I keep mentioning over and over again. Christopher McQuarrie just cutting back and forth between things just to increase the energy of what actually is kind of a slower paced story. When she's giving, these are the options we have. You know, you could uh, turn me into the British government and do you know this and this and this. And then Lane's probably still going to get it. And you have some of the guys saying, that's a good idea. And the other one saying, nope, bad idea. The way they cut back and forth, it's just there's so much energy to the scene. Um, and then, of course, it ends with the whole, it's like, you could go away with me. And I think it's Luther who goes like, oh, boy. <laughs> and that line kind of leads you to believe, like, this is their flirting moment where she's like, we could be happy together, Ethan. You know, Julia was never right for you. I'm the woman for you. I'll put some hair on your chest. <laughs> <laughs> and it plays that way. And here's my theory. And I think I mentioned this in the last one, too, that they're trying to fool the audience because they don't want you to realize that Julia is still coming back because – um, spoiler for people who haven't seen the trailer for Mission Impossible Fallout, Julia comes back in the next one. And the audience will probably always be expecting that unless you give them reason to think otherwise. And that's why all that stuff about, you know, oh, your wife died uh, in the last one. Well, first she left you and then she died. It was making the audience actually feel like, well, this is how we're writing out the movie. And then him checking out Paula Patton's bra that just a weird scene like that that feels like it doesn't even belong well that I mentioned that was meant to kind of make you think well he's moved on you know it's not going to be about him mourning his wife anymore he is going to be James Bond just betting a different woman 
every single movie. And that's why I think that scene with the girl and the the record store girl and the same thing here with Ilsa is in the movie because both of them are just kind of subtle. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I'm yawning. You're sneezing. We are the most professional podcast on the internet. (laughs) You know... I'm just, I'm, I'm totally gonna hold that. I am gonna end this episode with the most massive fart you have ever heard on the Austin <laughs> Network. We gotta get out every bodily function by the time this episode's over. Well, I know what, what I'm volunteering for then at the end. Uh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I need three pictures of Kevin Bacon and a picture of Pierce Brosnan's chest there, and I'll be good. <laughs> Ah, <Achoo. laughs> Ow, that hurt my man boobs. <laughs> ben snorting something hard to make him sneeze like that. <laughs> put some air on your chest. <laughs> you can put a muscle. Uh... <laughs> what was that other one? Movie Madness? They've probably got listeners. Movie Mavericks, uh... yeah. You wouldn't <laughs> hear this on the Movie Mavericks. <laughs> Even them liking Mission Impossible 2. Like, god damn it. <laughs> What's great? Just showing how much work we put into editing these episodes. And granted, this is late in the game. I mean, as we said, we had some delays getting these last two episodes out there. But we will keep in Ben's obnoxiously loud sneeze. But me actually laughing at Ben's jokes, I mute myself. I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to be associated with someone who. <laughs> I'll yawn on the air, but I don't want people hearing me laughing at Ben's jokes. It's just totally inappropriate. Uh, I just, I just noticed the uh, the tagline for the movie Mavericks is uh, it puts the podcast in the basket. That's um, semi humorous. Their website's much better than ours. Um, move on. <laughs> As I said, I listen to the the movie Mavericks every once in a while, like when I have a good episode on and they're not trashing Face Off or praising Mission Impossible 2. But anyways... You don't um, even listen to our own podcast. You listen to this. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Please put me on the movie Mavericks. <laughs> uh, all right. So the, the big scene is coming up here with the, uh, the Prime Minister. Um, this is like... Straight out of the TV show. I, I always mentioned like that scene, the Taurus one wasn't really like that. This is the closest I think we get to that TV show scene of you don't know what's going to happen. You just see the mission unfolding. And this is all built up by the whole argument that Ethan had with Brandt, which of course Brandt calls up Alec Baldwin and he's like, they're going to take the prime minister. I'm, I'm going to do this, but on my terms. And this leads to the British building they're in, British White House, wherever this is taking place. And as everybody's arriving, you know, Hunley sees that Atlee's there and he's even asking Brandt. It's like, so you brought the British government as well. He's like all jealous here. And uh, he mentions that Brandt's picked up some terrible habits um, uh, about always trying to control the outcome. Uh, Atlee and the PM. So we have the scene where they're all meeting here. And of course, as Atlee goes in there, he tells his guards, nobody comes into this room. You know, nobody enters at all. And... This whole movie, which has been about Ethan is making up the syndicate. When they get in there, Brandt, who has now betrayed Ethan, you believe, is starting to say, uh, well, he's saying nothing. And Hunley's saying, oh, so, you know, they, uh, 
they they think that this guy Sullivan Lane exists and the syndicate, and all of a sudden the pr- prime minister says, "Wait, you're not talking about that syndicate, are you?" And it's like, "Wait, the syndicate <laughs> actually exists." Like again, I think the CIA is going to have some intelligence. Uh, the whole idea here is that Atlee pitched this idea of the syndicate to the prime minister, and this is where the, really the only point you actually find out what the syndicate really is. The title "Rogue Nations" actually referring to what the syndicate is it's like it's an anti-imf we got that line earlier on in the movie and outside of the whole idea of an anti-imf it's supposed to be like a government spy agency like the imf that can operate completely off the books and that they would take agents from other countries and it's about counterintelligence against those other countries it essentially is an a sanctioned terrorist organization which is actually a really cool idea. Uh, um, I, I don't think that the movie really sells that that much in this movie. I don't fault for it. I think it, this movie's interesting because you're always scratching your head thinking, what is this syndicate? What's going on here? Uh, but then when the prime minister starts saying, like, you know, this was a terrible idea that Chief Atlee had, and uh, I shot it down right away. He's like, there is no syndicate or whatever. Brand starts questioning them. We get the, the reveal here, and I can't wait to hear what your reaction was when this came up, where all of a sudden... Atlee shoots the prime minister and he pulls off the mask and it's Ethan the whole time. The only time the mask comes in the movie and another good swerve to the audience was uh, the, the thing about Simon Pegg putting on the mask earlier where you think, well, they got the mask out of the way. The only time a mask is used here. And I think this is probably the most effective mask gag. I think all the mask gags are effective. This has to be the most effective one because of Brant betraying him and because it was Atlee that gave this up, and he's the last character you would expect that they would be impersonating at this point. Uh, of course, the scene kind of plays out as you think they've accomplished this mission now by the, the tranquilizer they've shot the PM with. It's a truth serum, and then the real Atlee comes in after the guard's like, uh, you're not allowed to enter here. Well, who told you that? You told us not to let you come <laughs> in. So like, These guys are complete buffoons. Uh, but then as they're asking the prime minister about... Uh, you know, um, everything that's happened. And Hunley's like, you know, you just set U.S. and U.K. relations back to the American Revolution. And then Brandt's asking, like, uh, you know, uh, Chief Attlee here or whatever uh, shot the prime minister. It's like, yes, he did. And it's like, <laughs> and you rescued him. And then he's like, you did? Thank you. That's very kind of you. <laughs> uh, and even Attlee's on the truth serum here. So they get the whole red box. You think the movie's all going to be over, but there's going to be a little bit more to come. But I think Mission Impossible 1, the way that Phelps is revealed to be the villain, you know, when they're meeting together and Ethan's running through everything that happened, or he's kind of speculating in his head how everything could have happened. Between that and this, these are the two most complicated scenes in any of the Mission Impossible movies. And these are the things I love most about it. And I, I think at this moment when I was watching the theater the first time, I thought, as much as I love Ghost Protocol, and it is my favorite Mission Impossible movie, they've finally gotten back to really screwing with the audience's mind. Well, I legitimately, I was ex- in some ways expecting there to be one just when Alec Baldwin starts going like, he can do this, he can do that, he could be wearing a mask right now. Like, I either thought it was going to be Alec Baldwin or the Prime Minister, who essentially had yeah. their face lifted off that's where i thought they were going face with it face off. off um the best john woo american movie fucking movie. yes <laughs> mavericks idiot. movie mavericks uh, <laughs> movie mavericks <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But, like, it's completely confusing the shit out of me, like, when um we get uh, Ilsa, like, with the British guy, the Secret Service guy, to kind of like, oh, crap, she's working with them too. Like, who is she? Like, what is she doing? <laughs> Um, I, I, you know, that'd be so cool if that was like M, that was Judy Dench or Ray Fiennes just like sitting there. How mind blown would have you been if they officially connected Mission Impossible with James Bond? Oh, like I mean, you would have just dream. Oh, like seriously, sitting down on the bench, there's Ray Fiennes. Like, yes, so uh, 007, 007, <laughs> M sponsors our podcast. Ooh, and then Solomon Lane steps aside and the real leader of the syndicate is revealed to be Darth Maul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Guardians of the Galaxy land, <laughs> out comes a Velociraptor, clever girl. Uh, <laughs> and then Brendan Fraser comes out and screams at a mummy. Uh, <laughs> And the Oz Network climaxes all over the world. <laughs> Achoo! <laughs> um, but yeah, I, cause like the thing that's like blowing my mind too, like with the complication is like, ah, oh, little bastard Jeremy Renner's like going behind the back yeah. and he's getting Alec Baldwin in here, the little snake, like, fuck you, Hawkeye, no one likes you anyway, boo! Um, that's what everyone says anyway in the film. <laughs> boo, it's Hawkeye! <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like the whole scene's great and just, you know, yeah, like you're right, like the, the mask reveal, like, holy crap, he just shot the British Prime Minister. Um, you just killed just the Prime out, Minister. <laughs> Tom Hollander, uh, who plays the British Prime Minister, uh, just going through his filmography, starred in a certain film called Gosford Park, aka Ryan Felipe's award winning yes! Florida Critics Choice <laughs> Award film. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the Ryan Philippi collection connections are just everywhere in this movie. Um, I, I believe it was going to be called um, Philippi Nation, but uh, they wanted to confuse <laughs> themselves with um, with Star Wars instead. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, when this whole thing happens, like you're right, kind of like with the complications. I, I'm I'm here trying to in my head, like okay, so he shut the prime minister. He's going to do that. It's true serum. But then the real guy's about to come in. <laughs> I'm like, hang on a minute. So, Hawkeye's not really a dirty little scoundrel. Uh, he was in this all along. Um, it's Alec Baldwin's chest hair that basically turns him around as well. <laughs> um, I do like the truth serum. I wanted them to, after having seen Ant-Man and the Wasp, I just want to be like, there's no such thing as truth serum! And it's yeah. like, oh man, that is truth serum! <laughs> I was thinking that too when I was watching too. Oh, anyway. Um, but I mean, it's like, the thing, this whole like red box thing that only the Prime Minister of Britain can open this, like, they broke into the CIA and the Kremlin. Like, oh, come yeah. on. They can break <laughs> into the red box, the British Prime... Like, does that mean even the Queen can't open that? Like, hide in the British Prime Minister? Um, I mean... I do, I, do, I do like it when he's like, oh, you set back, like as you said, British relations back. Just a little shrug that Tom Cruise has yeah. again. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, mean, he does yeah. a lot of that because that's the same line that Tom Wilkinson had in Ghost Protocol... Uh, it's like, uh, you just set US and Russia relations back to the Cold War. Like, that's like a, a badge of honor for Ethan Hunt in these movies. Like, I just want to ruin relations between America and every country that they previously are on bad terms with. Wait till you see what he does with Germany when we get to Fallout. <laughs> or Austria. Or San or Marino. <laughs> when they he need, they bombs need... the new Nagasaki, then you know relations Winnipeg. are going to be set back. Uh. Winnipeg, yeah. <laughs> You destroyed the Royal Canadian Mint! 
<laughs> you just set back American and Winnipeg relations back a hundred years. <laughs> and also, like, how weird is the scene? It was my opening line in this, too, when um, Brandt is getting the fingerprint or whatever from the prime minister, and the prime minister on his day states, like, you've got a really warm hat. <laughs> they just sort of I look love at him the prime like, minister. Okay. Oh, he's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Another quirky character without being so quirky that it's funny. Like, him and Atlee. I mean, this movie kind of makes fun of the British intelligence. But then again, it does the same with the CIA. And that's really no different. Like, these movies are all about, like, the governments and even their agencies are just complete dodos. And it except takes... for the IMF. <laughs> except for the IMF. Not even except for the IMF. Except for one man in the IMF. <laughs> Luther. Yeah, <laughs> Can you imagine if Tom Cruise stepped down and they just made Luther the main character of these movies? You know, he's going to be, like, speaking of that scene that we passed where everybody was, another thing I missed, where uh, everybody was chasing after Benji was taken, and um, uh, which I also missed the reason why they were stealing this thing for Lane was because he said, I've got Benji. <laughs> and uh, nobody cares. Um, yeah, Benji's been kidnapped. <laughs> we're just, it's a little, little mark we've just gelled over in the film. It's like, ah, I'm Ryan Felipe. Oh, by the way, Benji's been kidnapped. Oh, well. Shit happens. But there's a, yeah, there's another funny line, too, um, where uh, – I'm going to see if I can find it here in my notes. It was earlier in the movie where there was almost a throwaway line like, no, Benji. Yeah, so when, when Brant was trying to get Luther on board with him, he says, they're going to catch them and they're going to kill Ethan and Benji. And that should be the moment where Luther's like, well, Benji's the innocent. Instead, he goes, Ethan's my friend. I'll help you because of that, <laughs> brother. <laughs> but, it, yeah, that's weird. It's like he doesn't even care about Benji. But now all of a sudden, we got to save Benji. But, yeah, that scene where they're chasing through the parking garage and Ethan and Branch just, like, sprint. Like, Tom Cruise and Jeremy Renner running, running, running. I'm Ethan Hunt. I was semi-Jason Bourne. We can run. And then Luther's like, Catch up to you guys in a minute, brother. Yeah. <laughs> He's just shuffling through a crowd of people. But then when they cut to the garage, ben, uh, not Benji, Luther is literally five seconds behind these guys. <laughs> and none of them are out of breath. That's one thing I was yeah. noticing in the screen. Like, they've freaking sprinted through this parking garage and they just stopped and they're just like, whew, all right, who wants to go get a coffee? <laughs> Luther's like, I'll take the escalator, guys. <laughs> He's the only one who's out of shape in this whole IMF. He's Chris Tucker in The Fifth Element. He's like, what's wrong with you? Bomb's blowing up. Shit happened. I'm leaving. (laughs) But yeah, Benji's been kidnapped in case you forgot this movie. Oh, not Benji! So now, in order to get Benji back, they have to come up with a plan. And I like that when they... Uh, Luther has like this big reveal about you're not going to believe what's actually in this red box. And all you're seeing is numbers everywhere. It look like bank accounts. And Ethan takes a screwdriver to the USB drive. And this leads us to the climax. Now, one of the other things that got a lot of publicity before this movie came out, along with the plane stunt and then the, the swimming scene, the thing that this had the most publicity for was the reshoots. Not just that this movie had reshoots, but much like Solo, they shut down production of the movie for three weeks and when this hit, you could imagine, as we've talked about on our solo review uh, over and over again, just the media will jump all over be like, this is a troubled movie. It's going to fail. People are going to hate it. Tom Cruise's career will be over because they stopped production for three weeks. 
I don't know why this is a big deal. I think we, we talked about on the solo episode the same thing. So many movies come out nowadays where once they're released and people see it, they're like, well, that could have been a whole lot better. You know, there were clear script problems. There were clear p- performance problems. The director didn't seem to have his heart in it. Why wouldn't they have just stopped before they were in too deep and fixed it? Done a rewrite. Done this. Done that. Here's a movie that did that. And every single comment about this all the way up from when they shut down production until it was released was, well, they had to reshoot the whole ending of the movie and rewrite it. And they shut down production for three weeks. This movie's going to suck. Shouldn't it say the opposite? If there's a movie and the, the producers and the director and the writer and they know it's in a bit of a trouble and they say, let's start from scratch. Let's send everybody home and then we'll come back and we'll fix it. Like to me, when I hear a movie does reshoots, I'm like, good. You know, when yeah. the Avengers does reshoots, <laughs> I'm glad. I don't want this to be Age of Ultron. Reshoot the whole thing. Um, give us something decent. Because everything that happens from this point on was scripted completely differently. And when they were filming this movie, when they got to London and they were getting ready to film this sequence here, they had a completely different climax. And Christopher McCoy talks about it, that it was actually bigger. In most cases, you're like, well, I don't think this is big enough. Uh, a good example of that would be Jaws, right? The original ending of Jaws just had them stabbing the shark and then it slowly lost blood and sank to the bottom of the ocean. They're like, well, we need something bigger. Hey, what about that You know, uh, oxygen tank? Let's blow that up and the shark blows up. Oh, that doesn't make any sense, Spielberg. Who cares? It'll look great. You just improvise on something bigger. Here they did the opposite. I don't even know what the original scripted ending was, but it was like a big action piece, which is partly why I was mentioning the motorcycle chase being the last one because there was supposed to be another big stunt scene here similar to like the ghost protocol uh parking garage and uh, india sequence and christopher mcquarrie said i'm not feeling it i i think we need to do something simpler more personal this is a character movie let's make it about the characters so when they shut down production for three weeks on this movie it was to make this scene simpler and eventually they came up with as they they spent this time you know tom cruise chris mcquarrie's thinking how do we make this work? They're like, let's have it be about Benji. Let's have it be about these characters. All the things that they've set up but hadn't quite put the pieces together. That these characters are playing each other the whole time. That when they sit down in the scene and Ethan gets there at the table and he's saying to Lane, you know, you were ahead of me every step of the way. You knew no matter what happened, whether I helped Ilsa or not, whether Ilsa was working against you or for you, you knew we would end up exactly right here. That's what the this whole rewrite was about. Were you saying I, something? Oh no, I legitimately was going to say I I read somewhere that the actual ending of this movie was going to have Ethan um, put a, a gas tank in uh, Solomon Lane's mouth and go smile, you son of a bitch, and blow up. <laughs> but um, I, I think that's the, where the rewrite came from. Then Richard Dreyfus pops up out of the Thames. <laughs> <laughs> they swim to shore. Robert Shaw. Um, <laughs> the other thing that I think really works is the Benji kidnapping. Uh, and I didn't quite put the pieces together. You know, I talked about um, Ghost Protocol, uh, and I didn't get it at the time, but why Benji was important in retrospect watching that, because he was the innocent character that the audience could identify. He was Julia from Part 3. He was Naya from Part 2. Um, he was kind of Ethan from Part 1. The one that's outside of everything that you, you're supposed to feel for because he's in the audience's position. Yeah, Benji's a real spy now. He's not like in Ghost Protocol where he's like, I just passed the field exam. Crazy, right? He's into this now. 
probably more so than you know Brant at least. And he's been the one in all the action scenes. And this movie actually is, in more ways we joked about it, more of a love story between Ethan and Benji than it is anything else. You know, it's about Benji actually trying to help his friend above everything, but he never sacrifices the mission still. And Benji's the only character this would have worked with. If you had him kidnap Ilsa, you don't care because she can fend for herself. Benji's the only character that you honestly believe he needs somebody to save him. He's the damsel in distress. And I'm really interested to see what they would do with Denji in Fallout, or do they need a character like that now that, you know, uh, spoiler, Julia's coming back. But that's why this works so well, because you can even see in Simon Pegg, for a guy who's just a comedian, he's got some real dramatic acting skills. Like, you could see tears in his eyes. Just the fact that they have him saying Lane's words. Another thing with, like, intercutting back and forth. You have Lane's start a sentence, and you have the whole idea is that Benji's got a bomb strapped to him, and he has to speak for Lane to Ethan in this you know table setting. It's just so different than you know the way any other movie would have handled this, and to see that reaction on Simon Pegg's face, where where he's got terror on his face, he's got like sadness. It's it's actually like it's kind of a powerful scene. Um, and then Ethan's big reveal, you know, another moment where he's, they're just way ahead of the audience and just completely messing with your mind, where he's like, how about I give you $50 million to just let Benji go? And he gives him one account number. He verifies it's there, and he's like, you want the list? I'm the list. I memorize all of it. You think somebody couldn't memorize all of it? Then blow us all up. I'm calling your bluff. And you get the one moment where Lane kind of loses it, and he's like, he looks like he's ready to snap. And eventually he just you know hits the button, deactivates Benji. And then we get... the this incredibly tense moment and it's broken with a line that again only simon Pegg can bring humor to is like, you know when i said you'd uh, one day go too far this is me talking by the way not him <laughs> um and it leads to this very simple action climax here which is just benji runs to brant and luther who are setting something up you don't know what it is and ethan's going after lane or i guess lane's going after ethan and ilsa's running from the bone doctor the actual fight scene we get is Ilsa and the Bone Doctor, not Ethan and anybody. I mean, Ethan has had so much of the fight scenes. And it's Ilsa who kind of gets to get the big action moment at the end here. Um, I just love the setting, too, with her hiding around the pillars. Like, it looks like something out of a horror movie. Uh, and then when Lane eventually chases Ethan, which is actually a very short... I forget how short it is. I think it's because of how effective everything is. We've had back to back to back. We had... The Taurus, we had the car chase, we had the motorcycle chase, we had kidnapping the Prime Minister. Then we had the, the standoff at the table uh, with, with Benji and the bomb. And then we just get this very brief chase scene, which just ends in Lane following Ethan into a hole in the ground and following into a box. And another moment that I don't think I really saw coming, you know, th these movies have a way of setting something up and you don't see it as being obvious. It's not like the... Um, you're going to see the gymnastics in the Lost World, and you're going to be like, oh, they're bringing that back again. But them having him in the box, and he's like, you know, uh, uh, Brent, whatever, this is Solomon Lane. Solomon Lane, meet the IMF. It's like, it's a totally a cheesy moment, but then you have them on all four sides of the glass, and he's banging on it, and you have the da-na-na, da-na-na. And like, it doesn't even matter that there's no real action on the end here. It's just such a satisfying end. And then you get that brief moment with Ilsa sort of leaving and what's really important here is that she hugs Ethan. She doesn't kiss Ethan. She hugs him. Again, going to my whole theory that the whole purpose of them throwing these female characters out there and giving even just the mild bits of flirtation, like when 
Ethan and Benji stare at each other. They kind of give this look like, huh, as she steps out of the pool in her bikini or the whole, you know, run away with me. Oh, boy. They're subtly leading you to believe that this is where Ethan's going to find true love. And that's why I think Fallout's so interesting because Ilsa's back in Fallout, but Julia's back too. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Fallout at the end of this. Um, the very last scene, of course, isn't even Ethan. It's another reprise of the uh, Senate scene where all of a sudden Alec Baldwin's like, uh, so remember when I told you to disband the IMF? That was all part of a cover. And the only way that we could have ever taken down the syndicate was have you disband one of the oldest organizations in the United States government. Now, will you please reinstate it? Uh, and you get Brandt with his, I, I can never confirm or deny that without the approval of the secretary, which plays like a joke. And then you just cut to that final line as Brandt's walking away and Hunley's walking away next to him and, says, uh, and he says, uh, uh, welcome to the IMF, you know, Mr. Secretary. And that's setting up, they've got a new secretary, IMF is officially back. Uh, it's just, it's a weird way to end this movie compared to what we get from the other ones that is not action, but it's all about the story and the fact that how quickly it flies at you, especially with Ethan just memorizing this whole list. It's one of those spy moments I've talked about in all five of these episodes where it's like, this is what a real spy would do. And you wouldn't typically see this in a spy movie because they think it has to be all gadgets. In reality, it'd be a guy memorizing every single bank account over the course of five minutes and then revealing it. But it's another thing that's interesting is just how little Lane is in this movie. He's not like, he's in it about as much as Hendrix, but he has so much more of a presence. And it's just such a great performance from, uh, 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 I think Sean Harris is his name, the guy who plays Lane. But I just. <laughs> he's so good, that guy who, um, uh, you know, that guy. guy that guy. <laughs> him in Prometheus, remember? He's going to be dead by the time this episode airs, like all the Mission Impossible villains. But no, I mean, I love this climax, and I'm so happy that they did go back and do something simple because. If I have one complaint about Ghost Protocol, and I mentioned it last week, is that you were never going to top the building scene. You were never going to top even the sandstorm. Um, so that was the only reason why that parking garage scene, as great as it was, just didn't live up to the earlier stuff. And this, in a way, by not doing anything big, it makes it more acceptable that uh, it doesn't live up to it. It's just something different. I love the fact that Ethan essentially is walking around now with $2 billion in his head. And that yeah. he... <laughs> No, the, like I, I don't know if that's going to be touched on in Fallout. Like you know, is the syndicate still involved? I don't know. Maybe we're talking about that soon. But um, if you know, he's remembered all these numbers, and God, he's rich. Like he's just like quitting the IMF now and buggering off with Julia. And it's it's interesting. Is she even mentioned in this movie, Julia? Like yeah. that he's married and that yeah. she's off. You know, so yeah, it's it's kind of interesting with that. But um, yeah, I do I do like the whole. Uh, Benji bit on the um the the chair and everything that you were saying and kind of just the way uh you know he's like talking through the headset and everything and yeah it's it's really tense and then just the whole chase sequence it basically all ends up with him in a box um mm-hmm. with the the gas and I forgot to mention the Titanic reference before when Tom Cruise was in stuck in the box with the uh the the glass and his hand like dragging down the glass a la Kate Winslet in the car download our titanic recap colin loved it i'm, I'm uh, not myself right now by the way <laughs> the joke's flat <laughs> colin's just like download the canadian hulk via the best of the brink 2017 <laughs> um but, i mean the thing is like it, it, it's now that you sort of single it out and be like yeah okay you know it doesn't have 
uh, big action piece at the end, but it's it, it kind of it's almost like it doesn't need to. Yeah. Um, and it kind of still works. Like that's one thing I've been very critical. I think of the Daniel Craig James Bond films is the the climaxes aren't that brilliant. Um, and that you know they don't. That's kind of one thing that really lacks in the James Bond films of the Daniel Craig era. And the difference is, is like, yeah, you could say the same here with the Mission Impossible films, but it still ends on a decent note. And I'm not saying that the Daniel Craig films all end shit. Uh, you know, just when you're looking at them as James Bond films, you know what I mean? And I guess kind of if you always want to compare the, the Mission Impossible to the James Bond films, I mean, that's a key difference really, isn't it? That it's not necessarily a huge, you know, we're on a plane crashing over North Korea climax, you know, like, um, but, it, but it works. And, um, yeah, I do like that line from Ilsa that, you know, like, you'll know where to find me as she kind of walks off. But, um, yeah, I, I definitely assume that Tom Cruise is going to be having a threesome with her and, um, Luther. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Julia might come in too. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then Alec Baldwin is the secretary. Yay. So like, just to clarify, I'm not dumb, right? There was no secretary of the IMF this entire episode, uh, movie, right? No. Yeah, ever okay, since good. Tom Wilkinson was killed, like they even mentioned that at the beginning of the movie when he's giving that line, I can't say anything without the approval of the secretary. It's like, you haven't had a secretary in a year and a half. Right, okay. Uh, so yes, uh, Alec Baldwin now joining the manliest of manly <laughs> uh, services of the US government, the IMF, where all the chest-haired men like, uh, <laughs> you know, John Voight and um, Anthony Hopkins and... <laughs> you know, Lawrence Fishburne, Billy Crudup, you know he's got a big massive chest hair. Oh, he's got that chest hair natted like uh the dongs of previous <laughs> people. God, it's tasty. Uh let's move on quickly. <laughs> Very quickly. So I I guess we'll, we'll talk about Fallout kind of at the end of this um in a very brief um cuz I think by the time this episode comes out Fallout's going to be released in North America, at least. But um, for box office and everything, like Ghost Protocol, I don't think there were super high expectations with it. There was definitely expectations that it could do well, like Ghost Protocol did. Uh, but them using the July release date, it's not something Mission Impossible is always sort of a summer movie. It's in a May movie, one of the first movies of the summer, or Memorial Day. And Ghost Protocol did such huge business right around Christmas that to release this at the end of July was considered risky because this the original release date was December for this. They wanted to follow Ghost Protocol. And I think what should have been a clue to people when they said, oh, they're reshooting this movie, it's, it's you know uh, in trouble, was the fact that right around that time, they said we're bumping the release date up by six months, which almost never happens. Release dates will get moved back, but then we take a major movie and say, we're going to put this in the theater six months earlier because we have that much confidence in it. Uh, I don't know if it really had as much time to build as Ghost Protocol did uh, or Mission, or any of the Mission Impossibles because it was sort of rushed into theaters probably because they needed to get the name out there before people got confused when Rogue One was announced. <laughs> but the movie comes out and I think the projections at the time were probably around like 45 to 50 million. It opened like 55 million, at least here in North America. Um the most surprising thing about this, well, first I'll go through the movies it opened against. It opened number one. Also opening that weekend was Vacation, oh. the remake of the Chevy Chase movie. Isn't that one a classic? Uh, I it knocks, actually didn't hate it as much as oh, I should Oh, I hate you. <laughs> Get you and your hairy chest off this podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, 
it actually beat Ant-Man, which was the previous number one movie. Also in the top ten that week, uh, we have Minions, Pixels, Trainwreck, Southpaw, Paper Towns, Jurassic World, Mr. Holmes, and Terminator Genesis. There was a classic. Um, the most interesting thing about Rogue Nation is how it stuck around. Because I mentioned in both 3 and 4 that those movies that weren't expected to be as big as they did... One of the things with staying power is that it, it actually had minimal drops from week to week. I don't think that Rogue Nation had that reputation originally, but as I'm looking at this here, uh, it was number one for two weeks, then it spent two weeks at number two, three, five, four, five. So eight weeks in the top five. I don't know of any movie that can do that during the summer. I mean, yeah, I get that it's August and everything, but like, there's a lot of big August movies nowadays. Um, I think even around this time, August, there, there were quite a few releases. Uh, top five movie for eight weeks. That's kind of crazy. And you can see it for the overall box as well, because movie ended up making $195 million domestically, uh, which compared to Ghost Protocol was slightly down, but Ghost Protocol had the Christmas release and a lot of holidays uh, at the same time. Uh, it's third for overall domestic box office behind Mission Impossible 2. So I guess we'll do the overall take here. Mission Impossible 2, number one domestically, 215 million. Ghost Protocol 209, Rogue Nation 195, Mission Impossible 1, 180, and Mission Impossible 3, 134. So Mission Impossible 3 domestically definitely, I guess, was a steep drop even compared to all the other movies. Um, worldwide, Ghost Protocol, Still number one, 694. Rogue Nation, just behind that, 682 million. Uh, Mission Impossible 2, 546. Mission Impossible, 547. Mission Impossible 3, 397. Uh, so, I mean, overall box office, I guess it's consistent more than anything. I, the, the franchise, as much as this gets compared to James Bond for the content, for the success and longevity of it, is definitely the Fast and Furious, as I mentioned last week. And the Fast and Furious movies are very similar in that they had this peak with the first one. They slowly started to lose interest. Then all of a sudden, the fourth one, they built it back up again and suddenly became this phenomenon that nobody expected late in the series. Uh, this definitely doesn't make the amount of money that a Fast and Furious movie makes. But the critical response, I think, is what sets it apart. Because here we have huge box office. Now, 20 years at the time, this movie came out 19 years into the franchise's existence. And the reviews just get better. I mean, Rotten Tomatoes, this has 93%. Uh, two of the really good reviews on here that I found, I won't go through too many because we've got still more to talk about. Richard Roper uh, from Chicago Sun-Times, uh, who is also partners with Roger Ebert, um, who was, I think, dead at this point. We probably killed him, sorry. Uh, he said, with Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, we're getting the best Bond movie since Casino Royale in 2006, which is fantastic. Uh, and uh, another one, um, uh, Mark Kaiser from Synagogues.com says, In the post-movie star age, Cruz is with apologies to a certain Austrian bodybuilder whose drawing power is all but terminated the last action hero. How far wow. have we come from Mission Impossible 3, where people like the movie but just want to hate everything about Tom Cruise? And here are Rogue Nation going into Fallout. The thing that people love the most is a 50, what, five-year-old man doing insane stunts and stealing all the screen from all these young, fantastic stars like Jeremy Renner, Simon Pegg, um, young men like Alec Baldwin. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's be honest, Alec Baldwin, I mean, he's not that far removed from Tom Cruise's age. 
it should be impressive if he was able to do these stunts, but it's just we've come so far from Mission Impossible 3 to Rogue Nation to just see how everybody turned around on Tom Cruise, especially critics in the media. Well, is, is Alec Baldwin, isn't he, wouldn't he be older than Tom Cruise? He is or? older. But he, uh, yeah, he's older, but he's only a couple of years older. Like, he's born 1958. Tom Cruise, I think, is 1963. So he's like five years older than Tom Cruise. Well, which goes to show that uh, cocaine on toast does add to your ages, but it, you know, yeah. gives you man more <laughs> chest hair. Um, I, I'm very disappointed in our box office uh, weekend chart. You didn't mention the 93rd, 95th and last ranked film of that weekend. Uh, the great film, The Pardon, made $93 that week. Um, oh. I actually made more money last week than The Pardon did in that week, so um, go me. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, I hear the words Fast and the Furious, and then you just look at the, the numbers it make, and I just wonder, why do I live in this world? Like, it's just, it's, it's, <laughs> it's ridiculous. At least Mission Impossible movies are good. <laughs> well, three and a half of them are. Uh, or four of them. I didn't hate the first one. Um, so, yeah, and, and that's a bit offensive to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like, you, you put his name on something and he he's not Bruce Willis who's just doing direct-to-DVD movies now. You know, it's still Arnold Schwarzenegger has a name to him. Um, generally not a good one much anymore, but they're rebooting Terminator, aren't they? So, um, sure, it'll help. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, what is this new Fast and the Furious movie coming out next year? Hobbs and Shaw? Like, a spin-off what? movie, yeah. Oh, just leave it alone! They're cars! <laughs> they drive fast and they get furious! Like, whatever! Stop it! Oh, is that all, all you had to say? say. <laughs> okay. Sorry! It just makes me angry that the Fast and the Furious is a franchise It's like, making all this money. It's dumb! I, I agree. I, I got to be honest. I've seen every single Fast and Furious movie, not the most recent one, but I've seen the first seven. And I only like the first one. I don't know why I keep watching them, but they do things like, let's put The Rock in a movie. I'm like, that sounds cool. I'll check that out. Let's put Jason Statham in there. Oh, I got to check that out. And they keep fooling me into it. So at some point, I'm going to stop giving them my I've money, too. I've seen the second but... one, and that's only because I worked at the movies at the time and I saw everything for free. <laughs> so I actually saw the Lizzie McGuire <laughs> movie that week. <laughs> <laughs> And I'll tell you which one I enjoyed more. The Lizzie McGuire movie. <laughs> um, let's go through our favorite segment here. So these are the keywords, or the plot keywords from IMDb <laughs> for Mission Impossible. Um, this one, I got to say, not nearly as funny. Some obvious ones in here, like Falling from Height. Uh, my favorite Falling from Height movie is definitely Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, which is number one. Uh <laughs> By the way, Fallout's on there actually beating Rogue Nation. Fallout's number three, so we're going to get some falling from height in Rogue Nation. Uh, shot in the arm, shot to death, shot in the back, and shot in the chest. I'm assuming a lot of these are going to be the same movie. <laughs> Punched in the stomach, uh, American Abroad, I think we've gone through that before. Uh, exploding car, kicked in the face, man fights a woman. Uh, there, there's what wisecrack humor... So what's your favorite wisecrack humor movie, Ben? Because number one right now is Ant-Man and the Wasp, predictably. Oh, definitely Schindler's List. Because yeah. <laughs> Schindler's List was also my favorite movie to feature chewing gum, which Rogue Nation is number one on. What chewing gum is there in Rogue Nation? They were in Morocco, so probably on the street I mean- or something. Does this people confusing the first one with the whole red light, green light? <laughs> There's no chewing gum in this. 
There was apparently more than there was in the Princess Diaries, Baby Driver, Now You See Me Too, or Leon the Professional. Uh, <laughs> big chewing gum movies. How was Willy Wonka number six on that? What a shame. <laughs> <laughs> so, not the best ones here, but uh, we, we do have to get to Jamie's favorite category here. And I think we, uh, we had the um, bare-chested male category that Jamie was such <laughs> a big fan of. I see the one Let, you mean, sorry. Yeah, there's there's one that tops it here. So bare chested male, this one has a new one, bare chested male bondage. <laughs> with number one, Van Helsing with Jamie's favorite, Hugh Jackman. Uh second, Jamie's second favorite, Tom Cruise, Rogue Nation. The Princess Bride, Carrie Elwes, is there male male bondage with Carrie Elwes and the Princess Bride? Have you seen well, it? There should be if there isn't. And of course Casino Royale. I mean, that's probably the only one that... Fifty Shades of Grey not on here? Is that because he's not the one tied up? I've never seen the movie. You tell me. I've never seen it either, but I know (laughs) it's... I have taste, Colin Hilding. Uh, (laughs) Um, Do you have enough taste to have avoided Hercules with Dwayne Johnson and bare-chested male bondage? Yes, I've sadly never seen Hercules. I was so distracted by the bare-chested male bondage that I forgot that Rebecca Ferguson was in it. Uh, pre this, but yeah, <laughs> Casino Royale. That's probably the only one I would consider male bondage. But <laughs> Jamie's favorite category. We finally got it on here, um, and uh, I guess we just have to rate this movie now. So well, can what I, are we can at? I so- just, I just, well, before I oh, you, you talk, just- go, go ahead on your male bondage. Go ahead. No, no, no. All I was going to say is my favorite category is here: moral dilemma, uh, which is uh, touched by Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom. We have Man with Glasses which is also topped by Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. <laughs> British Secret Service. Now, when you think of the words British Secret Service and movies, what are you thinking of here? Certain uh, British Secret Agent, who we maybe have a spin-off podcast on, download now via iTunes. Uh, so you'd assume that that would be the number one movie. No, the highest ranked That's James Bond movie is actually number three. Uh, with Spectre, so Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, followed by Atomic Blonde. Um, oh. And we have Hidden Gun... Uh, auction, and um, that's all I've got for. Yes, anyway, yeah. moving on. So I was struggling to remember the British secret agent in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. <laughs> so thank you for that. <laughs> but the one in Van Helsing stood out for you a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, I mean, let's read like What are Helsing? we at? I hate Van Helsing. Hated it. Hated oh. it. Okay, me too. Except for Richard Roxborough <laughs> as, uh, was he Dracula in that one? Or Jekyll? Yeah, that's a tough one. But it also had the uh, David, what's his name, the other Australian who David I really Wenham. liked. He was yeah. the sidekick. Yeah, yeah, I like him. Yeah, good Australians in that movie. Um, terrible movie. And Kate Beckinsale. And Kate Beckinsale. Yeah, I, I love though that you're like Bosworth. Which you're Kate? Like, no, that one was Beckinsale. But I love that you're like uh, and Van Helsing. You like Van Helsing? And I'm like, no, Van, I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> Let's, that was, let's just, come, that was the, the the big mid two thousands confusion of which yeah. Kate was in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's like Bosworth or Beckinsale, <laughs> Chris's and Ryan's of today, um, and basically both of them have done a Ryan Felipe, and no one knows what's <laughs> ever happened to them. They're hanging out with Josh Hartnett somewhere in a bar. Just remember when we were famous, guys. <laughs> Oh, Casper! Even Casper's sad. <laughs> Josh, you mentioned Josh Hartnett. No, too soon, Ben. No. Uh, so uh, let's rate this movie. And before you do it, I'm just going to do it right now. I would buy this 
And Ben's like, then I would buy it too. <laughs> Just to recap. Yeah, uh, no. I, Crosses out Binnett. Uh, yeah, buy it. I mean, I, I bought all of them but two, which I rented. I think you rented one, you binned two, and you bought all the others up until now. But I mean, this has to be a clear bot, right? Yeah, I mean, this is buy, and this is my number one in the, the order. Just I think I said that at the beginning. Um, you know, I, I really enjoyed this film, and this is probably the first one out of all of them where I'm like, yeah, I really want to watch that again. Uh, and just to correct you, you bought all but one. You uh, didn't rented. buy... You rented Mission Impossible 2. What's wrong with you? Um, but, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think my order essentially is just uh, 5, 4, 3, 1, 2. So, there you go. <laughs> so, it's backwards order except 2, which is everybody's yeah, bottom. It doesn't exist. It doesn't uh, exist. For me, I mean, this is tough because going into this, I would have always said Ghost Protocol and 1 are my favourites. And I still have a real soft spot you know, for nostalgia for the first one. And there's some things about the first that I still wish that we would get back to, just with it being kind of a pure Mission Impossible movie. But they've evolved the series so much, and I can't complain about anything they've done. Uh, when I first saw this, I would have originally said Rogue Nation was my second least favorite. Or I could say my favorite, uh, my least favorite Mission Impossible I like. What's the easiest way to say it? It's way better than two, so it doesn't deserve to be considered the second least favorite. <laughs> but I did not hold it in this high regard as one, three, and four. I think especially after watching it this time, it's changed because you really pick up on how good the story is. That's kind of how I ended the last one is that Ghost Protocol was all about entertainment. Rogue Nation was all about story. And I think the story is so good in this. And they have such a good blend of everything that all the other movies have that – I could never say I like this more than Ghost Protocol. And Ghost Protocol is hands down my favorite Mission Impossible. But I put this at two as well. And I don't think I would have said that three years ago when this came out. So I think I would go four, five, one, three, two. And one and three are pretty close as well. I mean, this is something that could change at any given point. The only thing that's always clear for me is that Ghost Protocol is my number one. And two is my least favorite. Well, there you go. Ryan Felipe would be proud. <laughs> Um, and by the way, my favorite Ryan Phillippe movie is probably 54, in case anybody's wondering. <laughs> no joke. is, um, the Snapchat he sent to his fan account the other day. I also I liked him. From a friend. I also liked him as, uh, Sergeant, uh, whatever <laughs> Dixon on WWE Raw. <laughs> I think his worst performance was as Ryan Phillippe in, uh, in just... His marriage to Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> <laughs> He's married to himself. Uh, we should talk a little bit about Fallout because we are going to be covering that probably in about a week, maybe. Because uh, as much as we'd love to bring you a review right away, and we, you know what, we might even bring you a review because I know I'll be seeing this with Jamie. Uh, I don't think she'll want to sit there on a full episode with me, but I might do like a little mini episode. Oh, quick come on, review. Jamie! She's so impatient. Like even we saw the Equalizer two today, which you will hear a review for that probably before this because. I was t she was talking to me about that, and I'm like, we have a different opinion on a movie. we got to do an episode on this. She's like, do I have a choice? I'm like, no. <laughs> Sounds like Mallory. Yeah. <laughs> we force our woman to do things. It's not what you think. <laughs> and that's why in about two weeks' time, we also will be accused of... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> James Gunn, you've got some friends. Ben Waterloo has been fired as a host from the Oz Network. Um... <laughs> 
but um, the movie comes out ne- uh, by the time you hear this episode today, <laughs> maybe in North America. Pretty much. Uh, I will have seen it 24 hours ago. It was fantastic. Can't wait to tell you about it. Um, <laughs> ben, you said it doesn't come out till the following week in Australia, but that you might be able to see it for a one week earlier advanced screening, right? Yeah, there's, um, the time of releasing this today, there are a few advanced screenings, which, um, you know, cause I'm such a busy person these days, uh, I need to check my schedules, uh, mainly the bank account. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I don't know why we get it a week later, cause generally it's been a long time really since Australia's been, you know, oh, we're later than the rest of the world. So for some reason we're being held back a week, but, um, you know, I'm from Tasmania, I'm used to that. So I'll, I'll see how it goes. And we should also talk about the movie. I mean, the yes. funny thing is you've seen trailers for this. I assume you saw it. Well, you did see trailers because when the Super Bowl trailer came out, we talked about it then. And at that point, you had only seen Mission Impossible 1 and 2. And um, I think we were only like two weeks ago when we talked about the Mission Impossible 3. That was what was really funny. We talked about Mission Impossible 3. And you were uh, mentioning in that episode, like, they must kill off Julia or something like that, right? Because you didn't even have the recognition at that point. To realize she's in all these trailers, they revealed she was in this movie in the trailers, but because you hadn't really seen the movie, you didn't connect the dots. So it's kind of fun to see like what your take is. Has this week just suddenly been, or the last 24 hours, did you watch this trailer and it's going like, I think I'm going to understand the trailer now. I'm going to be watching them. I haven't actually, honestly, I don't think I've seen it since the Super Bowl, though. I think one of the, might have been before Jurassic World or maybe before Ant-Man, they did have a trailer for it. Um... So I need to go back and watch them because I, I think kind of, yeah, I mean, at the time I wouldn't have had a clue who she was. Uh, and obviously I've, I've seen the cast, but, um, yeah, I mean, now I can actually know who Solomon Lane is and why that's important that, uh, he's coming back and why Rebecca Ferguson's coming back. But, um, you know, I think the biggest thing for us is obviously Henry Cavill. And I, yeah. I think kind of we talked a bit during Justice League. I mean, the big controversy over Justice League was, you know, his digitally altered leap because he was filming Mission Impossible, which to this day, I, I don't see it. I honestly do not see no. what people are saying that it looks shit. It looks fine. Um, but I'm just calling this right now. I'm putting a bold prediction based on how these films generally work. Henry Cavill will be killed in the first five minutes of this film. <laughs> He's in 90% of the trailer in about 16 sequences, and he's killed in the first five minutes. Yeah, he is the Kerry Russell, the yeah. Josh Holloway, <laughs> the Emilio Estevev. He's, uh, but I mean, no, in all seriousness, if that doesn't happen, which it's probably got a chance that it might, um, more likely it's probably going to be Julie who will get killed in the first five minutes, but... Um, she's just having a rest. We'll be on our way soon. <laughs> um, I, it's, it's kind of, is he good or bad? Um, I mean, it's saying on the here on Wikipedia that he's a CIA assassin, uh, tasked with eliminating Ethan and his team. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I for one am a person who thinks Henry Cavill would make a great James Bond, but I kind of also feel that given that he's Superman and now in a Mission Impossible film, we're never going to see that. But I wouldn't be opposed to it. Uh, Superman and James Bond, there's nothing this man can't do. And I'm sure Jamie's already lining up at the door with a box of tissues and some battery-operated oper- devices ready to watch oh. this film. Because is he shirtless in this movie? Probably. No, but I will tell you that if we're in a movie theater, my arm gets a big squeeze every time she sees Tom Cruise and Henry Cavill punching each other. Like, that scene does it for her. <laughs> she loves seeing these two guys going at it. 
to, um, to me, it personally will be if Alec Baldwin and Angela Bassett are on screen together. That, that to me is, uh, where I get excited. And they will be. Um, oh, oh, here's the funny thing, like, <laughs> with, with Henry Cavill, I mean, I'm a huge Superman fan and I like him as Superman, but I gotta be honest, I'm a bigger Henry Cavill fan for the stuff I've seen him in that is not Superman. And that's no knock against him. It's just I think that he—I thought he was so good in the the Man from Uncle a couple of years ago um, that I wish that we would get him as a James Bond because I think he would nail that. And here in a Mission Impossible movie, I, I kind of expected that his character would have been the replacement for Jeremy Renner because obviously, I'm sure we're going to have a cameo in this. Couldn't do a cameo in Avengers. Couldn't do a cameo in, in Ant Man. He's going to show up in this. Um, it is weird. We talked about this on the last episode that like Jeremy Renner was apparently not in Mission Impossible because the schedule was too busy with the Avengers stuff. Now, maybe that's a, they shot Avengers 4 at the same time as 3 or something. I don't know. But we could we got to have some explanation from not being there. But Henry Cavill par- character, I thought, was going to be a replacement for Brandt. And then when I saw the trailer and there was that the first teaser, there was that one shot of him just firing the machine gun. I'm like, well, this is going to be interesting. Maybe he is a villain. I thought that the second trailer would make it clearer, and it definitely shows him as being more the villain or the guy that's after them. But then I always remember, like, Lawrence Fishburne in 3 and um, Henry Cherney in the first one. There there seems to quite often be that character who's... Even the, the Russian cop or the Russian um, uh, Kremlin guy in Ghost Protocol, there's always that character that's after them that's portrayed like the villain, but then in the end, they're like, oh, we're on the same side. So who knows where they're going to go, but... Oh, Very God. late night here. <laughs> but, um, I mean, that's what I'm most excited about. It's weird because I'm, I'm excited for the first time for a Mission Impossible movie. I'm actually really excited for somebody else to be in the movie. Uh, you know, there's some great actors who have popped up in these movies uh, where I'm like, oh, it's cool to see them in this. But I'm equally pumped to see what Henry Cavill is going to do as I am Tom Cruise. Um, also, the other thing to mention is that Christopher McQuarrie coming back the first time they've ever used a different director. I mean, they went from Brian De Palma to John Woo to J.J. Abrams to Brad Bird to Christopher McQuarrie to Christopher McQuarrie. That's just Tom Cruise being so enamored with this guy, not in that way, that uh. he 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 needs to work with him on everything. I mean, Jack Reacher, Mission Impossible. He had him do the screenplay for The Mummy for him. I mean, obviously, he'd worked with him on Valkyrie and other things prior to this. This is going to be different to watch a Mission Impossible movie that will actually fit alongside another Mission Impossible movie. Or maybe Chris McQuarrie's just crazy enough to make this movie feel completely different from the others. But it was like very early on in production. They said, we're going to have Chris McQuarrie back. We are not replacing him. Like, he has to be the guy. And of all the directors that gone through, that's the craziest thing. Because J.J. Abrams stayed on as a producer. Um, there was even talk about John Woo possibly still doing three early oh on. God. But this is the one guy that they committed to. And they're saying, we'll stick with them no matter what. So, I mean, will this movie feel like a natural sequel for the first time to a Mission Impossible movie? That's the other thing I'm wondering. Plus, with the involvement of Julia and Ilsa and everybody coming back. I mean, to me, this feels like, even though I mentioned that Ghost Protocol was the start of a new trilogy, I almost in a way have a feeling that a week from now, by the time we've watched Fallout, we're going to be saying, like, Ghost Protocol was the transition movie and Rogue Nation on is the new Mission Impossible trilogy. Well, no pressure, considering that it's currently sitting on Rotten Tomatoes at 96%. So, 
<laughs> you know, you got to want to hope it's good. I mean, we went into Black Panther with it sitting at about that, didn't we? And you and I didn't really like Black Panther as much as yeah. the rest of the world has. So, and they're talking about that being nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. Come on. No. Um, anyway, if Wonder Woman didn't, then how the fuck does Black Panther? Um, coming soon, Ben and Colin get angry at the Oscars. Um, <laughs> But yeah, no, it's, this will be the first Mission Impossible film I see at the movies. So there's a thing for you. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how it goes and kind of now that I get everything that's happening, I think I do at least. Um, and I just want to see like Henry Cavill's mustache that they couldn't shave off. Uh, so <laughs> that's and, all and- I've been looking forward to in 2018 when it comes to films. You know, how does Mission Impossible keep squaring off against these bigger franchises and coming out the winner? I mean, Star Wars and them, they're like, no, you can't announce Rogue One. We're just going to make you wait on announcing Rogue One because we feel like it. And here, Mission Impossible going up against DC. And uh, I can't remember who it was. Was it? it was Joss Whedon who said that they did visual effects tests. They basically presented what it came down to with the digital removal in um, Justice League was they presented them with two shots. They said, this is a shot of the digital removal that we did uh, where we removed Superman's mustache. And here's the shot of us digitally digitally adding facial hair back onto Henry Cavill for Mission Impossible. They did those two tests and they showed it to Paramount or whatever or to the producers of Mission Impossible. And Mission Impossible said, no, he's not shaving it. You got to do your worst one. And they said it was also... it was infinitely cheaper, infinitely cheaper for them to have removed or added the hair to Henry Cavill in Mission Impossible. But instead, they're like, forget it. We're not going to be pushed around by the big boys like Star <laughs> Wars, DC. Why couldn't he just have worn a fake mustache? Like, yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> you know, I mean, they, they really, like, they, this is a thing Hollywood have had for quite some time, the ability to put fake mustaches on people. <laughs> Uh, I mean, Tom Cruise had a moustache in a Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Yeah, it was not CGI. <laughs> like, this is the most baffling thing to me that this has been a debate and that this turned into a thing that people spoke more about in Justice League than the movie itself was the oh, ugly lip of Henry Cavill, which looks no different. But, and like, why can't the- they use a fake moustache in Mission Impossible? This better... I'm telling you now, this better be the most realistic, fucking awesome-looking <laughs> moustache I've ever seen in cinema history. Otherwise, I'm automatically giving this a rent. And how much cocaine did he snort to get that hair on his face? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, it's funny because... I didn't even realize the absurdity of what I was saying, which is really the absurdity of what these studios are arguing about until you said that. That... <laughs> In their mind, their solution was easier to have him shave and then digitally add facial hair than to say, we will buy you a first-class face wig. <laughs> I'm sure after Viva Vendetta, when Natalie Portman was in another movie, the option came between her wearing a wig and digitally adding hair yeah. to her head. Hmm, what would be easier and more realistic? Let's digitally add hair to her head. Because <laughs> a wig is so much more expensive than our digital yes. hair adding. You could shave some of Henry Cavill's chest hair <laughs> and put it in, like, some adhesive and whack it on his face and make it, like, <laughs> like legitimately, you can get long hair on a female and fashion it into a moustache. It looks realistic. So huh. why can't Hollywood do this? <laughs> 
Oh man, I, I'm I'm with you now. I want to see the most glorious mustache in this. I want to see something that makes Tom Selleck cry and weep like a yes. baby. <laughs> this is like legitimately. He comes on screen with a mustache and you're like, it's beautiful. I can't, I, I can't believe what I'm seeing. Seeing it on an IMAX it's... screen in 3D, I will know the full effect. <laughs> it, it's like basically. Like, when, when George Lucas saw Jurassic Park, right, I'm making the prequels. Like, this is legitimately <laughs> going to change Hollywood. Like, <gasps> that moustache! Finally, I can make the movie I've always wanted to make! And you know what? They're bringing back Magnum P.I. this year. Guess what they're going to have? <laughs> Digital moustache! <laughs> oh, God. It's, yep. You know what's amazing is that we, we really don't have... I mean, the trailer doesn't show that much of the story. You kind of get, again, it's going to be them operating Rogue. Um, apparently, Ethan goes too far with somebody we don't know what. Uh, Sullivan leans back. We don't know why. The majority of what we have to talk about is Henry Cavill's mustache. We're just as guilty <laughs> as everyone else. Well, he's really... I mean, between him and Angela Bassett, they're kind of the only two new people in this film, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a bloody good combination to add to a film. I'm not complaining. (laughs) It could be worse. It could be like, I don't know, Ryan Felipe and Josh Hartman are joining the game. Ooh! Whoop-de-doo, Basil! But again, we're getting other characters back. Like, we're we're getting Ilsa back. That's really exciting. Uh, We're getting Solomon Lane back. We get Luther. We get everybody but Jeremy Renner. He really did mess out. But, uh, no, I mean, it's... I think it's going to be exciting. Like, obviously, you do not have your ticket yet. You have not decided when you're going to be going, how you're going to be going. Uh, I don't have my ticket yet, but I've checked they're still available. But I know we're going to the Thursday show. Uh, it's funny because um, we, went, we went camping uh, last night. And uh, I think when we uh, were coming back today, Jamie had just talked to her parents who had been watching Casper. And apparently, her stepdad said, it's like, you guys can go camping again next weekend if you want. We don't mind watching them. And then I'm like, Mission Impossible's out next weekend. And apparently I sounded so whiny. Like, she was just saying, like, oh, they offered nicely that they would babysit me again, even next weekend if we wanted to. I was like, no, Mission Impossible's out. I don't want to go camping. <laughs> and I got, like, really upset with her very quickly. Oh, poor little Colin. Yeah, I mean, this is my movie of the summer at this point. And it's funny because uh, I know several other people who have said the same thing where they're like, you know, I actually think this looks better than everything else out there. My brother's a good example. You know, he saw the first one with me twice. Uh, I dragged him to see the third one just because that was my mission. I chose to accept it. it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there you go. You're too slow, man. Uh, But uh, I dragged him the second one. (laughs) I dragged him the second one. Uh, The fifth one, he came with me again the second time just because, oh, I'll be interested in seeing it. He's never excited to see a Mission Impossible movie, but he's always surprised how much he likes it. And he was telling me, we went to go see Sicario two weeks ago, and uh, we saw the trailer for this. And he was telling me just beforehand, because he had seen just the teaser, he's like, yeah, it looks okay. It's like, I know I'm going to love the movie, but I don't think I'll rush up to see it. We saw the full trailer, and he immediately turns to me and says, okay, I think I'll go to that one too. It's like, not going to go first day. <laughs> it was the same thing as Rogue Nation. I'm like, that's fine. I already know I'm seeing it twice. I got my ticket for the second show already. <laughs> Well, I'm just, I'm literally trying to, uh, work out. So, uh, there is a Friday showing at a cinema near my house, but getting there from work isn't exactly going to be the easiest thing before 6.30 when you finish at 5.30. So I might not be able to see it unless I don't go to work, which is another option. Uh, 
<laughs> Tom Cruise on money. Um, I know hey, I could technically make it. Might be worth it. I could. I would make it three minutes before the movie starts if I caught a certain bus. So it's doable. There you go. We'll and see. If, if we don't, then like I said, we'll probably have like a 15, 20 minute long thing with me and Jamie, and then we'll do a proper review with Ben and I after that. Because the interest in this movie is really picking up. Like, I remember a month ago, people were saying, oh, yeah, they're expecting this could open 45 to 50 million. And then a week ago, they were saying it's probably going to open $55 million. And now they're already adjusting and saying it's going to open over 60 million. So, for the course of a few weeks, they've added $15 million to the opening weekend gross, which really has everything to do with the reviews that are out there, which is why reviews still do matter, um, especially when they're honest and not like the reviews for The Last Jedi. But. This movie is getting, like, the best reviews. We even posted the story on our Facebook page uh, because it wasn't just, hey, this movie's getting glorious reviews. It's like these reviews are calling it, like, the godfather of action movies. Things that even I, as, like, the biggest Mission Impossible fan I know, never expected where they're saying it's going to be the dark night of action movies. This is, like, Die Hard and then Mission Impossible Fallout and then every other action movie ever made. Well, I mean, I'll just read what it says on Wikipedia right now. The film received acclaim from critics who praised its cinematography, story, action sequences, stunts, and the cast performances. Many hailed it as the best installment in the series, with some calling it one of the best action films of all time. All time. All Up time. Up Kanye West with... stands in front of this movie. No, and he's like, yo, Dark Knight, I'm really sorry for you, but I'll let you finish. But Mission Impossible Follows <laughs> one of the greatest films of all time. And can I tell you why it's going to be one of the greatest films of all time? Because Henry Cavill has a great mustache in it. <laughs> well, I was going to say, we don't have Ryan Phillippe, but apparently this movie has Wes Bentley. Wes Bentley? <laughs> the poor man's Ryan Wes Bentley. <gasps> um, am I uh, to know who this is? <laughs> Wes Bentley, the, the guy from the kid from American Graffiti, or not American Graffiti, that was much earlier. <laughs> uh, American Beauty. Oh, so he was the, the bag, one Kevin's okay. The floating bag. Oh, no, I'm, I'm looking here. He was in American Horror Story. He was, um... Yeah, Hunger oh, Games. okay. Yep, yep, yep. I like him. So do it for West Bend. He actually looks like he could play Superman. Look at that picture of him on Wikipedia. I mean, he's no Henry Cavill, but... I <laughs> no bet you... Is. I bet you his mustache is pretty good. Well, I mean, I'm looking at a picture of his mustache. I mean, it's no Henry Cavill mustache. He actually looks like Henry Cavill. <laughs> He does, I know. Um, kind of a mixture between Henry Cavill and Tobey Maguire, if you ask me. Hey, why are we talking about West Bentley? Ryan Bentley. <laughs> there, no, there's a man. I'm on the West Bentley train right now. <laughs> anyway, so Fallout's going to be coming very soon. Uh, Rogue Nation, it was a blast. We got our ratings in there. We finished Mission Impossible month. Then we're going to be taking a month off at least. Um, <sighs> there may be a special movie project that Rossi and I have in there if we have time, but... Oh, glad we to say will... I'm involved. Well, I mean, you're welcome to be involved if you have the time. Um, <laughs> but well, look, I we're figure forming you have a job factions now, now on there. the Oz Network, are we? Oh, well, well maybe Mel hey, and look. I will start our own. Me and Nick will start watching a movie together. <laughs> you and Nick just finished 100 episodes or something. <laughs> well, maybe we want to watch New Zealand Movie Month. Okay, bar black sheep and the other ones that are there. Well, I just assumed that you were going to be excited for September, which is our anniversary month. 
But apparently our anniversary means nothing to you anymore, Ben. Well, yeah, no, it doesn't. Well, we, are we, do we want to say what, what are we, are we officially locked in the four we want to do, haven't we? I think we have, yeah. So, I mean, we did this last year, and it was done in September just because there was nothing else to cover. <laughs> nothing exciting comes out in September, um, except for Predator, I think, this year, maybe one or two others. But mm-hmm. we decided we wanted to do a couple of these anniversary movies, like it was the 20th anniversary of Titanic, I think one of the reasons we started the Oz Network is because we had so many arguments about Titanic off the air. Um, and then we decided, <laughs> let's... Do. Yeah, still. <laughs> and then we said, well, let's add some other movies. So the idea was, let's take movies that I'm familiar with, that you aren't, you're familiar with, that I am not. Movies we both hate, movies we both love, and just mix it all up. So last year we did, what was it, Titanic, uh, Face Off. Uh, White Man Can't Jump, and Dirty <laughs> Dancing. <laughs> so this year, uh, what are the four we locked in there? I believe, now you correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, the 50th, we're going all the way back to 1968, mm-hmm. to do a movie I've never seen before, and what is often regarded as one of the greatest movies of all time, 2001 A Space Odyssey, um, and I grew up with this film by my father saying, oh, it's one of the piece, biggest pieces of shit of all time, doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so, God, I can't wait to watch that. Um, also, going all the way back 40 years uh, to another movie, you know, you thought you loved us doing Dirty Dancing, which it's not a musical, but it's still, you know, got a lot of music hyped around it. We're going to do an actual musical, which I believe will be the first mm-hmm. musical we've ever done on this show. Uh, if you take out Kill Phil. Star Wars holiday uh, special. Well, that too, but yeah, let's forget we did that. Grease! Uh, a movie I've <laughs> never seen. Again, I've only seen the stage performance of it. Um, and I think then, are we not doing Last Action Hero 25th, and yeah. Godzilla? Yeah, Godzilla the 20th. So again, we like to mix these up and one of the things is that we're, we're both defenders of the Roland Emmerich oh, Godzilla huge movie. defenders. And I'm going to say that not to tell people to turn away, but because I'm sure you'll be amused by hearing us defend this movie. And The Last Action Hero, that's one that I think You've kind of became seen. a... I've never seen it. And it kind of became a cult classic. And you were going through, oh, these are the other movies. You're like, Last Action Hero. I'm like, you know, I've always wanted to watch that, but never have. So... It's, oh, it's so good. I think, like, the thing with that is just because it just got overshadowed so much by Jurassic Park. Because um, I think it came out the same week or, like, a week later or something like that. And... It's, it is one of these ones I feel that over time, it's kind of like True Lies. Like, it's one of those Arnold Schwarzenegger films I think at the time was kind of like, eh, that's not that good. Let's forget he ever did those. But, I mean, I think True Lies has kind of recycled itself into a huge cult favourite, and I think Last Action Hero is a similar thing. But, yeah, Godzilla. And on this day that we're recording this, uh, the new trailer for the sequel to the 2014 reboot of Godzilla has come out. Mm-hmm. Not that impressed with the trailer, if I have to be completely honest with you. Rather watch the 1998 Matthew Broderick Godzilla <laughs> <laughs> and that's like, it's I just think, oh it's we'll so have, good i fucking we'll love godzilla fun with that i mean it's a guilty pleasure movie for sure and i'm actually a big godzilla fan like i've seen all the japanese godzilla movies some of them more than once and i actually really disliked the 2014 godzilla movie which is one of the reasons i'm gonna have more fun covering this um greece is one that I, I don't know if i've ever watched it start to finish but i've definitely seen the movie multiple times in chunks because my mom used to watch the movie. Jamie loves the movie. Uh, I have to be honest. I am like, I'm a huge John Travolta fan. You know, we're going to make this John Travolta anniversary month if we have a choice. But um, as much as I love John Travolta and everything he did, 
I could never stand Grease. And I don't know if my opinion will change if I actually watch it start to finish instead of watching it broken up all over the place. But it's one of these things that I just didn't get. Um, Last Action Hero, like I said, I've never seen. And uh, 2001, it's one of these movies that I definitely, I'm up there saying it's, it's one of the best movies I've ever seen. There are things that are incredible with this movie, but I don't think anybody watches this movie the first time and their immediate reaction is, I love this. If you do love the movie, you probably took the time to watch it more than once or you read the book, uh, (laughs) things we know Ben's not going to (laughs) do. Sorry, I just had a cough there. Yeah, or you are just some super intelligent person who just understands the most bizarre. Or Stanley Kubrick. Or you're Stanley Kubrick, yeah. Or you snorted a lot of cocaine. Um, well, Stanley Kubrick. I mean, yeah, Stanley it's, like, it's kind of like a Clockwork Orange. I've never seen it, but my sister's like obsessed with it. You know, oh, this is great. But like, no offense to my sister, my sister's taste in films are just the complete opposite of what I like. She likes Donnie Darko, which I think is a mm-hmm. piece of shit, and Eternal Spotlight, Spotlight of the Spotlight. <laughs> that Jim Carrey, Kate Winslet piece of crap that is just crap. Um, like she likes those really warped, twisted movies, and I think kind of the only ones that I've ever that I mean, she liked American Psycho, which. It was just one of those ones where you kind of watch and like, okay. Oh, and she's all I like, oh, that. the book's so much better, the book's so much better. But over time, like, I haven't seen it in a while, but I really want to watch American Psycho again because I actually mm-hmm. think it was better than I remember. Um, yeah. But anyway, that's my sister. My sister's favourite movie month coming soon to the Oz Network. <laughs> and I like A Clock of Orange too. Um, I'll say if I watch these, I think I watched these two movies maybe about a year apart. I definitely understood and appreciated a clockwork orange on the first viewing 2001. It took some time, <laughs> but I think if, <laughs> if you take enough time, the, the whole reason I picked this, I was looking through which ones we should do. And when I was, I was listening to another uh, podcast, which I have nothing bad to say about other than the fact that they praised Titanic. It's called unspooled where they review the AFI top 100 movie. This is Colin promotes other podcasts night. Um, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> They did a 2001 episode, and they were talking about, like, how strange the movie was and everything. And I just thought to myself, I'm like, if there's ever a movie that I want Ben to watch just so I can see how confused and utterly frustrated he is, it's this. So this oh, is my punishment God. for sitting through Titanic. Is to make You're planned the whole time. <laughs> Right, so next year I'm going to come up with some plan for me to get you to watch some other movie that I know you hate. Yeah, like Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet in Revolutionary Road or something. <laughs> I don't know, I'll have to do Natalie Portman month or something oh, like no. that. Oh, um, no, I shouldn't have opened my big mouth. Beautiful Girls, um, Where the uh, Heart Is. I love um, Where the Heart Is. That one, I'll, I'll stand by that one. Um, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Friends with Benefits, or whichever the one she was in that um, that Justin Timberlake wasn't. They're both the same movie. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Godzilla, I'm just most excited. Like, last actually here, I love it. Grease, yeah, sure. It's 2001 Space Odyssey, better start watching it now for me to understand it by September. And, um, like, just Godzilla. Like, oh, God, just that movie and- needs defending. You know what else might make it more fun is that there's a very good chance that we'll be recording one, if not a few of these episodes in person. Yes, yes. <laughs> so if you ever listen to our Titanic episode, imagine if we were like five feet from each other across the table. We, like that would have been explosive. Do, we did do Die Another Day commentary together. So come on. Yeah, like, <laughs> that's right. It caused a baby to cry in the next room. <laughs> 
So we're not out going to have like Mallory and Jamie joining us for this. Like, no. what the hell is with this? Why are there eggs in Madison Square Garden? It doesn't make sense. Why the hell is Arnold Schwarzenegger coming out of a movie screen? It doesn't make sense. Why is Ben in the fetal position? He's trying too hard to think about the plot of 2001 A Space Odyssey. <laughs> but that's coming uh, soon, uh, in at least God. a month. And then Grace. <laughs> and then Grace, yeah. <laughs> Tell me about but it, we, Dad. You know what's funny is that we we did the, the Spider-Man movies. Last summer, we basically did the Spider-Man movies. And then just out of fluke of George Romero dying, we did the Night of the Living Dead original trilogy, too. It was, what, about eight movies we did um, with the Jurassic Worlds and this? I mean, we're at nine already, but to me, it felt way more exhausting covering the Spider-Mans. Like, the Jurassic Parks and the Mission Possibles just seemed a lot more fun to cover. That's just my take on it. I think, yeah, I mean, I think the, the difference is is that Spider-Man did have that big middle part where it kind of shifted, and they're, they're almost two franchises in themselves. Yeah. So I think that's where it was, whereas, I mean, I came into the Mission Impossible ones, I guess, not knowing how to feel. I'm kind of like, yeah, okay, I'll do that. I wasn't the most excited for, but I'm glad I've done it. And then I guess Night of the Living Dead, I had no clue. I'd never seen any of them, no clue what to expect. And for the most part, I enjoyed those, so... Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's always interesting when you kind of go into a franchise that maybe you're not that knowledgeable on. I mean, I kind of feel that you've, you've been lucky in the fact that all the ones we've done, you kind of know. It hasn't mm. really been one that, I mean, even while I might be the bigger fan of Jurassic Park, you still know them very well. Mm. Um, so there isn't, there isn't really one that I can think of that I could probably say like, Hey, let's do the, the Hangover trilogy or something like never that. Never seen like, it. <laughs> Uh, well, okay, well, you've never seen it, but, I mean, you see the first one, you've seen all three of them, so... Yeah, I've seen uh, the first one, so I've seen all three. You've seen all three of them. The second yeah. and third one are exactly <laughs> the same movies. So. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think kind of that's the difference. But, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely see your point. I mean, I went back during the week and listened to... I've listened to The Sixth Day. That's where I've started. I kind of want to listen to all oh. our movie ones. Um, but <laughs> The Sixth Day. Oh, it was hilarious. Oh, we're, we're comedic geniuses. And Arnie's coming back. That's what we have to do. Uh, Arnie. <laughs> uh, so stay tuned for that, among many other things. Uh, like I said, there may be a project that Rossi and I are covering um, in August. I don't want to say anything about it, but maybe Ben will do it too if he has time. Uh, that could be fun. But if it ne- never ends up happening, then this conversation never took place. Um, <laughs> and th- this episode will self-destruct in five seconds. <laughs> Anyways, let's wrap it up here. My name is Colin, and that puts some hair on my chest. And my name is Ben, and you want drama? Go to the opera. Thank you for listening to the Oz Network. Don't forget to subscribe to get new episodes delivered to your speakers every week. For more information, hit us up at theoznetwork.net.